Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 94 of the Simple Life Podcast. I don't know if you've noticed, if you've looked out your window, but it looks like summer's over. I know astrologically it's not for another couple of weeks, but very much is in the north. So we're going to be inside. So I'm going to give you some wonderful content to keep your ears and eyes amused for the next hour or so. Probably two, because there's quite a hell of a lot of content to cover here. Uh, today's guest, I'm not even going to bother segue, and we can just jump straight into it, uh, is currently a non-practicing, this is a weird way my notes have written this, uh, I'll try that again. Today's guest is a non-practicing uh, British lawyer who, after having a legal epiphany when working with renowned psychedelic chemist Casey William Hardison, went on to found the Drug Equality Alliance, the DEA, love that acronym, brilliant, uh, a non-profit whose purpose is to transform the war on some people who use drugs um, from its... God, my notes there are really bad. From its subject, uh, historical and cultural roots into a rational and objective legal regulatory framework. They are Daryl Bickler. How are you doing, brother? I'm all right. You certainly set yourself up with a mouthful with that introduction. <laughs> yeah. thanks, yeah, I'm so pleased to be here, Simba. I mean, yeah, we first met, was it about two weeks ago now? Or was it a bit longer? Uh, product Earth. And, I think uh, phys- physically in presence, yeah. A couple of weeks yes. ago, Product Earth, but I, uh, I've been, been quite aware of you for a long time, and it's just that kind of synchronicity of the universe. I think the timing of it was perfect for us to meet a few weeks ago. Perfect, yeah. Timing is everything. It's always now. So uh, so putting beating ourselves up about past failures, so we'll have a brief resume of how, how we got to this point. But... Uh, like we say, onwards and uh, upwards. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, we, we, it's going onwards anyway. I'd much rather prefer to go up, but saying that going down is pretty fun if you think of a roller coaster, folks. Um, I suppose then a lot of people are going to be like, Daryl Bickler? No, I've never heard of this guy. Well, what was, what's this guy done? So I suppose for my audience that don't know, and I suppose actually to fill in some of the blanks of the information that I don't know, could you possibly give us sort of a brief synopsis? Uh, summation bio, I guess, of your your sort of work? Sure. Well, I was kind of a mature student in law. I, I, I retrained. I was getting a bit ill. I used to be in hotels and catering. And I decided to retrain in law. I found it um, fascinating. And um, I, I managed to get myself a training contract eventually. It was all quite difficult in criminal law. And uh, really, I find that in, enjoying, I mean, just going to police stations in the middle of the night, I mean, a lot of people hate it, but I, I, I found it a, almost a sport, really, um, playing that game. And I, I realised that I was so much on the, the side of defendants, even though people say, well, how can you represent uh, all these people, drug users, and, uh, and much, 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 much worse people? But... I always felt that there was inequality in the, in the equation with the individual and the state, and that it was a very rough ride when you see people less fortunate than ourselves, you know, caught up with the police. And it's incredible the disruption to people's lives that you, you're aware of. They're locked in a cell. You know, I used to go to the police station and I would immediately demand to see my client. I would see, look at the custody record, check that they've had drinks, they've had breaks, they've been allowed out for a, a smoke, make sure that everything was right. Because I, I always felt that this person was in a much worse predicament than myself. Mm-hmm. And I would always go the extra mile, if I say so myself, you know, just, just to get the best defense I could. Mm-hmm. But I realized quite early on that what I could do was, was quite limited. I had um, some some uh, young clients that were locked up in, in a young offenders institution, but, you know, one or two of them quite vulnerable uh, people. 
charged with uh, very small scale dealing of uh, heroin, which was pretty typical in Bradford, people selling wraps to fund their own habit. Mm. And I felt sorry that Whit Council told me that this that the minimum sentence likely for these young lads was going to be six years. And the one that I was charged with looking at was um, was quite vulnerable. And I, I decided to, you know, apply to the Legal Aid Board for extra funding to, to get uh, a, a psychological report and a psychiatric report mm-hmm. to use in mitigation. And these things cost thousands of pounds. You have to appeal to the Legal Aid Board. It's all solicitors' work. And sometimes you you know you can you have to get legal aid funding from another area to contest the decision of the legal aid board in your area. So legal aid is double funding at this point. Yeah. Such a crazy system. Well, anyway, I managed to get funding, and I had expert reports, and these things cost a couple of grand each at least at that time, probably more like five. And they identified that my client was you know, in a vulnerable category, broken home, poor schooling, no role models, uh, all these kind of things, and with personality difficulties. And I presented all this to the court for sentencing. And I read the judge said in court, and I have to say uh, to the um, instructing solicitor, Mr. Bickler, I fundamentally take issue with you um, presenting this evidence Drugs are a cancer in this society, and effectively was saying that my client was was a cancer. Yeah. And you know, I've spent equivalent to probably ten grand just on those reports, plus the probably thirty, forty thousand pound in overall cost of the defence. Not that I'm getting that money, by the way. I was just employed. Mm-hmm. But to say that after all of that work and bang that guy up in 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 a in a place where he's probably going to come to harm and pick up even worse behavior and tricks. It's, uh, I just thought, this is pointless. Mm. And I was really thinking about giving up. And um, one night, it was actually, the, it was literally the middle of the night. I got a call. I thought it must be a crank call because I wasn't on the, the rotor for the uh, police station at that point where they can call you anytime. Mm. And it was an American citizen I think you mentioned him in the intro, called Casey Hardison. Now, I had read about him, but I thought this was a bit of a wind-up. It must be some pal. Um, but as the conversation progressed, I realised that this was real, and I couldn't understand how he was calling me from a, a prison cell, because, excuse me, <clears throat> generally they they really do screen prisoners for, for mobile phones nowadays. It is pretty difficult. I know it, people, everybody imagines prisoners get phones, but... In a high-security prison, this guy was serving 20 years. Um, it's quite difficult, and that's why I didn't really believe it. But as the conversation developed, he explained that he had got a cell phone in, in tiny... Com- uh, he'd broken it down into little components, and he inserted these into condoms and inserted these into himself. And, he, and he, he'd hacked into a, some Swiss network somehow, and he had free calls all night. And this ultimately led to him calling me nearly every night to talk about what was happening to him. Mm-hmm. And for people that don't know, which is probably most people won't know about Casey either, but though he's famous in the psychedelic field because he invented new ways to make psychedelics. And he was known as the wizard. 
because he set up the biggest lab, the most sophisticated lab the police had ever seen in Brooklyn Brighton. Mm -hmm. And he was manufacturing uh, substances that he felt were not substances of abuse. I mean, you know, a lot of people will balk at the idea of somebody making class A drugs, but uh, I do agree that uh, psychedelics are not generally drugs of abuse, or they, they certainly don't have to be. And he was making LSD, and he invented his own way of doing it, whereas normally you have to use quite a few listed precursors, and it's quite a complicated synthesis. Um, he made an even more complicated method. I think he, he referred to the PIBOP system, and he used uh, a vacuum to uh, be able to create this molecule uh, more simply in terms of precursor uh, agents than mm -hmm. was previously possible. So he was making LSD. Now, when you make a run of LSD, it's not that you can just make for personal use or for yourself and your friends. I mean, you know, once you're into a few grams of it, which is the minimum, you're talking about thousands of doses, yeah. like literally thousands of doses. And so it, it wasn't that he was trying to be big in business, but he, he did have this idea that he was making something for the benefit of mankind. And he also uh, made uh, uh, DMT and he made uh, uh, NDMA as well, and, and I believe 2CP. I can't remember all the molecules they found in his lab. Mm -hmm. And I won't go into the details of the case, but he he had read about me in a court judgment that previously I had been involved with a case of a helping a friend who was importing psychoactive plants from South America, and listeners may may viewers may know a little bit about these things or maybe they. They just prefer to stay with, 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 with cannabis, but all these things exist out there in nature. Uh, fabulous possibilities in, in these plants. And this chap was importing um, vines for to make uh, ayahuasca, uh, which is a shamanic brew, which uh, contains DMT. And the DMT is in some leaves that you add to the vine and you have to boil it up. Um, and then he was also importing cactus skins and from South America. And those cacti, those green skins, they contain mescaline, mm -hmm. which is also a class A drug. But previously, nobody had ever thought of plants being part of the controlled substances legislation. But they're not. You could buy plants that contain mescaline in, in home, home base. And, garden centres, actually, at the time. Uh, the plant that more people would, would be familiar with would be peyote. It's very similar to peyote, but it's a different cacti. It's San Pedro. San Pedro, exactly. And uh, I think they call it wachuma there. And uh, mm. not, a, not, a, not a substance to be trifled with, by the way. I, uh, my former wife was Peruvian, and uh, I spent time out there, and I did try... Ayahuasca a few times and, and San Pedro, which is uh, possibly an 18 hour experience, um, not to be trifled with, mm. but nevertheless, it's it's a learning experience. It's certainly a, 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 a mind opening experience. It's not a, a drug of abuse. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I, I helped him. I, I, I wrote to the Home Office. I had been right to Home Office before this, saying that this idea that um, 
a, a plant becomes a controlled drug through the hand of man because it's being dried, and this makes it a preparation of a controlled drug. It's entirely an illegitimate way of defining things. I mean, plants dry out quite naturally. You could buy a, a cactus and a, after five years, if you water it, it would become dried out. You can't then say now, just because you've left that cactus in your bottle shed, you've now in possession of a, of a class A drug. But nevertheless, his imports were seized by border control, uh, whatever agents they were doing this. And uh, they said, right, you've got 10 kilograms of uh, cactus here and this, that's 10K of uh, controlled drugs, plus A, thank you very much. So what happened was, was that um, my letters uh, were, were brought, uh, adduced as evidence in court. And the judge accepted that, that there was certainly, certainly uncertainty in the law and that uh, one thing that you are entitled to is reasonable clarity. You're not meant to sort of preempt what the law might um, find you guilty of, you know, you're entitled to know. And that degree of uncertainty was enough to acquit that gentleman of the very serious charges at Kingston Crown Court. And that was mentioned in the judgment. And Casey, in his, in his prison cell, was a fantastic researcher. He had managed to access internet, a cell like a law library. He managed to get funding from external sources to buy law books. I was finding books. Some of the books were costing hundreds of pounds, mm. uh, which he was funding, by the way, not myself. But, um, and he, he came across that judgment, um, and that's why he contacted me, because he thought, well, here's someone who's prepared to, to help. And so we got talking, and he, rather than usually for a, a criminal law client, was the one kind of leading the, the whole thing, whereas typically with a criminal law client, I would come walk in and have to tell them what the lie of the land is. This is what's mm -hmm. possible. This is what is. This is the law. This is what isn't. And I was quite used to that. And it came as quite a, sort of a bit of a, a sort of shaking of the egos and things like that when, he, when I had this guy in prison telling me what to do and, how, and, and what was what, which was exactly what was happening. Only rarely would I be able to actually help him. I felt like, in many ways, I was like his, assist, his assistant. And I guess that was the inevitable consequence of coming across somebody who has a unique intellect, somebody who, one of these guys who can sort of uh, hack into systems and, you know, start a crisis from his, his little office somewhere just because he's so clever. You know, these kind of people get recruited into CIA and other things. It, it, you know, pretty much a mastermind. And Casey... He, he, he sort of helped me get to grips with what was really happening because I'd never really thought about it before other than that this is wrong. This is unjust. I've had personal experiences with drugs. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I started smoking um, cannabis when I went to college. I mean, that's like over 40 years now ago. Uh, I have to say it seemed very different then. Um, and I, you know, I dabbled it for experimental purposes, no, I'm talking about with lots of things like Serbia in South America, mm -hmm. tried their strongest drugs, but uh, or plant medicines, I should say. Don't call them drugs; people get upset. <laughs> but um, it was it, it was uh, really mind opening to hear from KC about how he understood words, mm -hmm. um, because 
ultimately everything about everything this we're having a conversation is based upon words and just talking like like normal people at the moment mm-hmm. but casey realized that the law isn't just a conversation you can't really talk about it in quite the same way now i don't want to jump ahead too much because i know you probably have questions about that and mm-hmm. it's easy for me to go on a roll and just do the whole thing without you saying anything sometimes. So I'll just back off for a minute and let you come back. I appreciate that. I was lost within uh, the storytelling there. Brilliant. I think you've, uh, you've you've surmised really, really quite well how sort of you transitioned from, I guess, a, a former life to the, the current one that you're in. Sure. And you hit on some some wonderful things that will kind of will come come to uh, as the natural progression of this recording goes. But one of the things that I was um, struck by here is the way the system is kind of geared up. So you do all of this work for your client to go back to uh, the, the the one of the vulnerable clients who was uh, accused of and ultimately found guilty of uh, of dealing heroin. That you then put in work for mitigation, which means that you then accept guilt under the law. So you are not fighting, disrespecting their, their terms, you know, against the law. You've done everything according to the letter of it. You are a d- defense solicitor in that action. You are seeking to provide the best defense. To then be belittled and to disres- <laughs> disrespected by a judge, which in its guise is the manifestation, the representation of the law. How, what what is going on there? How is that then not a conspiracy against the individual, the 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 air quotes guilty party in this point? You know. Well, there's two things coming up there. One is this, which we will explore later because it's important. Is this idea that the law is the law, when in fact, I, I mean, I tell you, when I first really thought about this was that there were people being hanged. I think Malaysia which I'd also visited. I had friends in Malaysia, and I, I thought it was such a lovely experience to go there. People very gentle, wonderful environment in many ways. And then I was reading about these guys being hanged for cannabis. Mm-hmm. And um, I looked up the solicitors who were dealing with it because I was already forearmed with a lot of possible defences. Mm-hmm. And, of course, most laws, including Singapore, they're loosely based upon the British law or the international kind of drugs laws at all kind of similar in many, many ways. But they they would do, insist on hanging somebody if you had more than personal. Anything that looks like you're supplying and, and you know it's it's hanging time, which uh something which kind of hits me very deep, really. I thought of that. And and that's remotely if if, it, if I was actually that was my client, I, I think I would be uh, I would need counselling after that. I don't think I could handle that. But um I spoke with, I tried to, well, I did speak with the, with, with solicitors by emails. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm a UK lawyer. I'm dealing with, uh, with all of uh, these, these kind of issues already. You know, can I, can I offer you any insights? And, and they were, their attitude was, well, you know, the law is the law. You know, don't make trouble. And I was saying, but that's, that's our job. It's not that the law is, is the law. It's our job to look at how laws are being applied, how they are administered. And this is a crucial distinction that is the role of a serious lawyer. It's not to say, well, I just apply the law even though it seems unconscionable. Because if it seems unconscionable, there's probably something wrong. 
because what laws really do, particularly the drugs laws, is they give powers to governments to administer to keep them relevant, to keep them up to date, and to make sure that the the way that they're functioning is proportional to the mischief that they're trying to prevent. Mm. So it's not like, you know, you, you literally, um, you know, hang people for, 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 for dropping a piece of chewing gum. Okay, mm. they don't like it in Singapore. Maybe they'll even get a cane out, a rotan, and hit you for doing it. Or maybe it's just a fine. Mm. But they don't hang you. So somebody would say, well, you know, what's this chewing gum law? It's, you know, is it proportionate to the mischief of, of, of the, the, the menace of chewing gum sticking to people's shoes in the street? Mm-hmm. Keep it relevant, okay? So you make a legislation saying it's illegal to stop chewing gum in the street or even to have chewing gum now in the city. Um, but you always have to keep it up to date so that you don't just run away with it. And this is what drug laws do, is they afford a lot of power to ministers and to advisory bodies as well. In, in, in our case in Britain, we've got an advisory council and they are supposed to be administering them all. And then what they do is what they call delegated or secondary legislation is they make new rules within the existing law. So the law isn't really the law. Yes, the primary law is the law, though even that law could be challenged ultimately on human rights grounds. It may not be be constitutional. Those types of challenges are quite difficult in Britain because parliament is supreme and sovereign. Mm. And if they pass a law, they, they, they pass it. But secondary law, all of this administration law that the ministers do, that's bread and butter work for, for judicial review. This is the kind of thing that people go and say, well, you know, your environmental policy, it's not protecting the planet. We're going to judicially review it to stop fracking or to stop whatever cause that you might think isn't right. You can challenge the law. That's mm. what it's about. And when I spoke to those uh, solicitors, or wrote to those solicitors, rather, in Malaysia, their culture was just that that was disrespectful. That, you know, to to respect the judge, you would never say anything like that. You know, that's a naughty boy. You're a naughty kind of lawyer thinking this. You know, we're the good lawyers. We just apply the law as we get it. And I realised that that was a cultural thing. And it's a cultural thing that is ubiquitous and permeates the minds of, of, of professionals worldwide is that I'm only doing my job. Mm-hmm. I'm only following orders. It's as bad as that because people will not think for themselves and they will not apply their moral judgment. And this is partly what everything I'm going to talk about in the law today about getting, getting back to, to how it, it operates properly. It respects the individual. You have to respect the individual and a judge, a judge who just follows orders. I mean, what kind of judge is that? Surely the point of having all that legal education, to be a judge, you have to be a lawyer, a, a mm-hmm. solicitor, a barrister, generally a barrister, you know, to be a senior judge. And you are um, you go through all of those years of training, all of that ongoing uh, professional development. You have all of your experience day to day, five days a week, looking at, at cases, then you are the person who knows what's right and wrong. It's not that you have to, but you still have to follow somebody else's rules just for consistency. 
Judges are working more like you, you could replace most judges with, with, with a computer program. Just with an algorithm, yeah. Just stick an algorithm. You know, when did he plead guilty? Aggravating features, mitigating features, all of these little things all affect the sentencing. There's your answer 22 weeks in prison, you know. Yeah. And then you do it. That's not really being a professional in the valley guard, but professionalism has become following guidance. That's what it means to be professional. Just follow the rules, even mm -hmm. though those rules, obviously, in certain cases, are entirely uh, ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and so that <laughs> I, I forgot the original question, but that was half the answer I was going to give um, about. Uh -huh. The judges, yeah. Mm. I think no, you, you spot on there. You you answered the question in the way that yes, I guess then it is a conspiracy in that they are conspiring to not be curious of the law. They are not trying to use their education and their their skill set to best advantage the individual that they are working with. You know, we, we see this in contract law. We see this in, in accountancy and in other aspects of law that involve. Well, yeah, often a, a much larger payoff and incentive for the individual. Um, but it's in their job type. They're literally, they're a judge. They are there to pass judgment. Yeah. So, so yes, they, they are empowered and endowed with the wig and all the pageantry. That's the state giving them that power. But it is still an individual's brain, a human that is supposed to pass judgment within that interpretive sphere of the law. The law is, I would argue, designed to be interpretive. So it allows classism, it allows racism. But obviously, it's 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 almost ambiguous enough that if you've got the right money, you you can defend anything in any situation. As we've well, we've we've very well seen with some unbelievable uh, court cases that have occurred in the world in the past. Well, in my lifetime alone. Well, uh, I, I've never dealt with uh, with those kind of people that um, you know have pull strings at that level. Um, but I have been aware of some weird things happening in the opposite direction to make it impossible to get justice. I can tell you that much. Uh, one particular thing happened that uh, I was talking before about judicial review, which is basically what we're doing here with, um, with, with, with cases work, because w what we're doing is we are, we're, we're turning up and you, you ask, I remember now, because you were saying you're, you're a defense solicitor, you're respecting the law, you're doing, what you're supposed to. And part of that is, is to question whether the law is being applied properly, whether it's consistent with human rights and common law principles, which is what exactly what, what we, we were doing. And so you go to judicial review, the administrative court, and you can look at the actions of government and, and um, um, authorities and, and question that. And that's what we tried to do, but it, it, it annoys them in the criminal court when you stop the proceedings at the beginning. You, know, you could stop it at the magistrate's court and say, I want to, I'm going to judicially review this process because I don't believe. It's not that what Casey was saying, it's not that we're pleading guilty and we're trying to get mitigation. It's not, that wasn't what it was about at all. He's saying, and we were saying, that there's a problem within the administration of the law that makes the whole thing unjust from the start. We, we can't plead guilty or not guilty to this offence because the law that uh, gives rise to these charges is not being applied or administered properly according to itself. So when you look at the Misuse of Drugs Act and what it sets out to do, and then you look at the way that the Home Office, the Home Office's subsequent Home Offices have administered it, 
have to keep up to date. They failed to understand actually what the Misuse of Drugs Act is about, and therefore they're not doing it properly, and therefore I shouldn't be in the dock in the first place. Mm. So what we do is we go straight to the High Court and say there's a problem here that we shouldn't actually, you know, we want you to look at the way that Home Office has either provided secondary delegated legislation about these drugs or failed to do that because they have a duty to do to keep it up to date, so they can't just sit and do nothing. That's you know they've got this job that literally is is constant to keep to make sure that everything is under review, and they failed to do that. So that that's what our first appeal was about. So this is very different to mitigation. This is literally looking for a, a proper defence, mm -hmm. and actually you can't plead guilty or not guilty at that point. I mean, if you had to plead, you'd say not guilty, but. If that's almost to imply that the charges are acceptable and you didn't do it. Whereas, in fact, you say, no, I did do this, but my real crime is that I didn't have a license to do this. Mm -hmm. And that the reason I didn't have a license is, is that you closed the door to the licensing operations, that options that exist within the Misuse of Drugs Act. The Misuse of Drugs Act sets out all beautiful things to allow everybody to do sensible but uh, important things with all drugs. Mm. It's all there, but they've just kind of closed the door on it. And what's interesting is how they close the door and how, and how they stop you standing up for yourself. And that's, this seems to be the pervasive theme that people walk with their heads down in this world, that in modern Britain, we're very subservient, really. We don't realize that this is the thing. We don't realize that we think it's, everything is normal. But actually, what defines our conscious existence in, in contemporary societies is so degraded uh, that we think of ourselves as pawns in a system. I mean, I know people are ideologically opposed to it, but even opposing it, they don't quite realize the currency of it. They don't quite understand how to engage it because they. What it means to be a human being nowadays isn't isn't very much. You're not given very much rights, uh, very much power, and you can't even take it. it. In fact, that what I just said alludes to a little bit what I'm saying. It's that people talk, think about, oh, I should be given that. Mm -hmm. you no, know, give me these rights, mm -hmm. and even that is passive because it's almost like deferring to other people. I used to do some doorstep campaigning, political parties and things that I approved of. And I'd always have people saying, okay, it sounds interesting. So, you know, what are you going to do about it to me? They say, you know, you know, I look forward, I'm looking forward to you, you know, sorting this out for me. Thanks very much. I'll think about voting. So the, 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 the limit of their imagination about what could be done about a problem that we both shared, we both agree about is that, Hopefully, like, you know, if I can be bothered, as it were, you know, hope doesn't really amount to very much, mm. uh, that I will, uh, I will, will go and do something for them and they're prepared to tick a box for me. That's about the limit of, 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 of most people's engagement nowadays. Mm. Um, it's very degraded. And part of what this is about, what drugs are about and what understanding the law is about is to try to rescue our subjectivity, rescue our agency from this quagmire of 
of low horizons, of low expectations about what's possible. People just expect everything to be, you know, oh, yeah, gas price is going to go right up, food is going to be short, you know, we're going to die. You know, this is what, you know, the way people are thinking. I went to uh, Hyde Park Unity Day, in, in that's not Hyde Park in London, by the way. It wasn't so glamorous Hyde Park in Leeds. Um, and I met so many, like, students are running political stalls, you know, all with grandiose sounding names. And they just spoke about doom and gloom that they actually didn't think they would even live to anything like my age because we'll all be dead. And there's this incredible negativity about humanity and more importantly about what each individual can do. Nobody believes they've got power to do anything. It, yeah. And I'll say even judges, they just feel like, oh yeah, I, I, I just apply, I just, I just process things. Mm-hmm. So even when they get to the top, the, 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 they're still stuck in this idea that what it means to be a human isn't very much at all. And I think that we're, we're all the agents of humanity, all of us, are as, uh, equally valid. And we, everybody, we are the operating system. We experience it uh, as individual discrete organisms, even though we're, we are all connected both like through social means and even if you believe in kind of a a wider sort of panpsychic connection connectivity between people mm. but the operating system is to experience it as the self and therefore the rights of the self are, are fundamental mm. and what we've got at the moment is a system which actually tries to censor what you can be and who you can be or how you are being and drugs law is the perfect example of that because firstly laws just generally they define us culturally they define you know your freedom of movement who you can now we've seen it all with the coronavirus uh, debacle how quickly they can close down all of all of your rights to even you know mix with people Mm. it's uh i found it quite strange that people were still campaigning about their cannabis social club uh, ideas in the old way, even during the panic, even during when they say, well, actually, you can't even meet, uh, just, you know, to, to have a book reading club. You can't, you know, the mind cannabis club, you, you, you know, it, it fundamentally shows just how vulnerable we are that they could just abrogate all of those, all of those rights. So the law defines really your possibilities of physical being, but drugs law is something on another level because Drugs, and that includes practically everything. I mean, we know we can go right down to sugar and caffeine if you want to talk about drugs. And it is a tremendously misused word because as soon as people hear the word drugs, they think we're talking about a certain type of substance. But of course, when you do that, when you give that away, um, that drugs are only certain drugs, then in a way you, you really let them off the hook for the way that the, 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 the completely cynical way that they decide that, that people sort of walking down the middle of the road are completely drunk and not breaking any drugs law, but somebody sat in their house having a quiet joint is because, you know, supposedly cannabis is a drug and according to the, the, you know, the general consensus, alcohol isn't even thought of as a drug. So we have to be careful about that word. That's the first word that requires care. Sorry, just knock that standard. So, what drugs law does is that it defines us physiologically because who we really are is a possibility of being 
permeable to all psychoactive molecules. So I won't make a distinction between synthetic molecules because they, they are the you know the products of human endeavor and we are nature. But we'll, just to keep it simple, we'll talk about it as if they're all natural drugs. So there's these natural drugs that talked about in South America, we all know about cannabinoids and the rest of it. We see them as things that are out there, but we are permeable to them through all different kinds of means. So we're permeable through our lungs, even through our skin, obviously through our digestive tracts, um, nasal membranes, the rest of it. We're permeable to these things. And, and, when, they, and, and when they do per, permeate into us, we've got receptors ready to have to receive them and welcome them. And even if we don't have specific receptors for certain drugs, they've certainly got particular physiological pathways, which are already part of our system, mm -hmm. that engage those and, and, and then take you to some other kind of modality of being, some other way of thinking. And it is actually very much about free thoughts. Um, I, I tend to see the uh, the mind in a way as an operating system that can that it can be like upgraded or, or revamped by different mm -hmm. chemicals because we are chemical. That's what it is. Reality is this chemical structures that we we exist within, and we're you know we live. So we see ourselves as separate from other. Ultimately, it's all part of a continuum, and drugs are just part of that equation. And so what they're doing is by by using words in a law where they literally have these lists. When you look at down, look at the lists of the various so-called class A, B, and C drugs. I mean, there are pages of these really long sounding chemicals that you'd have to have a you know a higher degree in, in chemi organic chemistry or to, to, to even comprehend what those molecules represent. And they've sort of detailed almost all of them in, in every kind of isomer, and they'll put them in a huge list. Mm. And what that's doing is saying that your consciousness, your way of thinking, has to be separated from nature with all of these different things. It's a bit like saying you can't, you can only travel to Spain, but all the other countries are, are, are off limits to you because you know we don't think they're appropriate. You might get bad ideas if you went to Africa. Um, they literally have closed down what it means to be human, and it's not that you have to take every single substance. Or, or even be open to it. It's a possibility that I'm talking about. You exist as a possibility of everything from now. And so until you sort of pass on, you have this possibility. Now you may or may not wish to, to try those South American plants or, or whatever. It's, it's, it's Italian, but to have it taken off the table and demonized and then a partition put in front of you, it's literally they kind of, slap this uh, protection or um i don't know if protection is the right word because it's it's more of a censorship mm -hmm. a physiological biochemical censorship over your experience of being and that is something that i believe that we all have a a, a right to it's a, it's our legacy that's what it means you know to be mm -hmm. the humans the possibility of enjoying nature of of expanding consciousness and and if there are these technologies to use uh so not quite the right word but sort of like a, they, they do almost represent technologies uh that plants they it can be incorporated in shamanic structure 
Um, it could be incorporated into a therapeutic environment, it could be incorporated into recreational, spiritual means, is that they change what it means to have your ordinary waking consciousness to some degree. It might just be a little chill out from a few tokes on your favourite strain, right through to a complete out-of-body experience and a perception of, of the infinite and a, a sense of immortality. And I guess that's why people are finding um, substances like psilocybin from so-called magic mushrooms to be interesting because in, in, in cases of, of terminal disease, people find it easier perhaps to come to terms with their apparent mortality because they, they obtain a sense of the infinite. And this is a very important sort of quasi-religious spiritual point that seems to be at the core of prohibition is that the, the, the sort of the priestly class, as it were, want to control what it means to, to be spiritual and that you should obey and do good work on earth and then you'll go to heaven. Mm. Whereas ultimately, people who have sort of crossed over the void into these shamanic roots will see things very differently and they will see their role and their lives and their experience very differently. They will not just accept the only waking consciousness as the only reality there is. And I think that's why they're clamping down. Uh, I'll, I'll just pipe down for a bit. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I just want to want to interject uh, for, for a second. Um, yeah, I immediately am struck by... Uh, Jesus, I can't remember which North American tribe it was, so I'm not even going to try and butcher whichever name I'm trying to read in my head. But they had a concept of you think forward in seven generations. Every action, every motion, everything has to incorporate. What is this going to look like for the next seven generations? In terms of the way that the tribes lived in symbiosis, in a, with a, a, a synchronicity with nature, um, they understood the, these these substances and the, the power of them. And the use was, yeah, in some ways shamanic and for medicinal and healing. And a lot of it was for, for curious exploration, for to find other information to bring back to this physical plane and realm. And I think a lot of other... Um, sort of what became not even the suppose sort of the monotheistic religions, but the the old world religions that survived. I'm thinking of Hinduism, uh, which is a polytheistic, and uh, Buddhism, which I guess is is monotheistic. Um, but they obviously taught things like breathwork, meditation, sound bathing, all these different things that were a way to also tap into that same sort of awareness and space. And I think we have this a line that stretches back across the entirety of human evolution and history. And if you believe Terence McKenna, obviously the stone ape theory, that these have shaped the entirety of human evolution. I've just lost them. Damn it. Oh, bit of technical difficulty there, but looks like we're back. Bloody gremlins under the desk again. Every week, every week. Um, what was that about? Seven, seven years, seven generations rather. Um, yeah. So, it's interesting that when we have had this affinity, this connection uh, with all of these other potential conscious expanding experiences and compounds that, you know, in a lot of ways, we are now starting to see, you know, produce empathy, compassion, a sense of oneness and belonging with the entire world, a, a greater affinity and connection to nature, that in their absence, we've ended up with like the, the communist five year plan. And now we're into in British politics, we don't even need a four year cycle for prime ministers and, and party leaders anymore. It's just, we, we're regurgitating. There's no real substance to anything that we're seeing. And I think that uh, uh, you spoke of wonderfully of an, an analogy about uh, sort of the restriction of, of colour. 
um, and that we are we are in this world that I think so many people have forgotten what it is to live with the ability to express their their conscious desires and unconscious desires freely. For all we have, you know, regained civil rights for certain sectors of society, races and and, um, and creeds and uh, re religious identities, and we're moving forward with, you know, sexual rights and laws, we're still missing the fundamental ability, as you say, to just just be human. So, yeah, it's it's, it's the, the two things that really stri strike out for me is that we've lost this ability to plan and to look after everyone and, and have and hold the ideals of a larger society with uh you know without these these substances or without these rituals and you know the presence of shamans and the i suppose quasi spiritual leaders that we've had over not, the years not every one of those sort of um laudable new liberties and recognitions say you know about um sexuality and things it is it, just is really always as libertarian as you think because there's always a flip side to it whereby mm. let's say freedom of expression so you know, pe people start saying that they want to have, um, you know, proper terms and recognise to the right language about their identity and not to be discriminated against, which is all well and good. But at the same time, then you need a law, supposedly, that says, well, you have now broken the law because you've said, oh, well, I only believe in two genders, male and female. I'm not going to get into that debate because mm. it's not what I'm about. But, you know, say, th yeah. there are people for their religious or, or scientific purposes would say, I, I, I don't recognise that. You know, I, I think it's like that. And that's my freedom of speech. But the law will say, well, actually, no, now you're guilty of harassment. Now you're guilty of some uh, newfangled legislation. So we get more and more and more law. So this is what's happening is that with every grant of a, a sort of a, a very well-managed uh, shift to accept something, then everything previously becomes unacceptable. So, pre so, so like when I start, when a public, you know, when I was born, it would be it, 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 illegal to be gay, which was obviously completely unconscionably uh, uh, evil thing to do to say that. But but now, if somebody for their uh, Christian belief says, well, I I know I don't think it's right, you know, I think that, you know man should be with woman. Then you 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 you're possibly already breaking the law, so um, we have to be careful about about these very incremental liberties. Now, the example you just gave about Mike's about what I said about color, I think that was from previous conversation. Um, just now, um, in our in our podcast today, I was saying it's a bit like uh, the British society says, well, you're only allowed to go to Spain because we think that's a suitable place for your holiday. Mm -hmm. uh, what I used that example before was to look at the idea of, of cannabis campaigning. And I said, imagine that it's, there was some new law. This is purely out of my imagination. It's not meant to be realistic. But imagine there was a new law that said that um, artists and painters and decorators could only use uh, black and white paints. Um, you know, they decided that everything has to be in these binary colours. And I'm kind of alluding to drugs law in saying that that's alcohol and tobacco, actually. That's that's the sort of the hidden message in that that's not hidden now, because I've told you. But imagine that you were an artist in that situation, that you, you had no um, uh, rights to colour. Would it be efficacious to say, right, well, actually, I'm a landscape artist. I, I, I love to paint fields and stuff, please kind of have green paint. 
you know, I, I will get the approval of the, of, of the senior government artist. Uh, you know, I'll operate under license or under supervision, but please can I have green paint. And the government comes along and says, you know what, you've made a very good case. We'll let you have green paint. There's going to be tax on it, obviously. Uh, you know, you'd be paying extra VAT on it. Um, you know, you'd only be allowed uh, one pot of supervised tone, tonal green paint every every month. Uh, make the most of it. And you go, yeah, we've got the green paint. We've won. But actually, there'd be a whole new raft of regulations about this green paint. And was was it the, the, the lack of green paint that was really the problem? Or was it the fact that they actually took the position that they control objects and your access to those objects to such an extent that they can predetermine what kind of pictures you can paint. Mm -hmm. Because that is what they're doing. They're saying that you can only exist like this and you can't have this green in, in your existence, but you can't have anything else either. The problem is, is not the lack of green paint. The problem is the fact that they've got the audacity and the power to determine yeah. what it is. So this is what I'm talking about, horizons. We don't think much is possible, and therefore we're trying to, to, to think of what is the, the narrowest, thinnest end of the wedge that we could possibly insert um, so that somebody, this poor child, I remember stories in the media, um, some poor child would benefit from medicinal cannabis. Let's campaign that a doctor can prescribe a particular form of cannabis to this particular patient and everybody's going to like get behind that campaign and that's going to solve the problem whilst of course that patient should have access to the cannabis you know and everybody means well it's not that people have bad intention but their perspective is is very much like on on the shop floor it's not that they are looking down as supervisors of that shop floor and saying, well, you know, how's the whole operation working? Yeah. They're not pulling back and looking at the big picture and they're operating in um, the, the sort of lowest common denominator terms that might just possibly mm -hmm. be acceptable to the Daily Mail. And I find this yeah. a very strange way of campaigning. And it was a thought that left me um, particularly... Uh, uh, poignantly after Product Earth um, and Science Festival where we recently re-met um, having spoken previously young and I, I, I was left with a, a feeling that there was something quite surreal about the idea of campaigning around one plant rather than campaigning around human liberty I think we should possibly explore that a bit more either now or later because yeah. I, uh, I I recognise that I will be sort of popping some people's balloons here a little bit because the more I read of the professional and 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 high sort of flying cannabis organisations that have come up, the more I start to see this as a a, a bit of a fetish, and mm. it's sort of almost quasi religious in tone, and I don't want to alienate the listeners. I want to. I, you know, I'm on your side. I'm on our side. Uh, you know, I, I'm not adverse to cannabis or anything like that at all. But I, I'm not sure that our terms of reference are, are, are really uh, powerful. And I'm trying to make that more powerful because I don't believe that 
the thin end of the wedge argument is necessarily persuasive that if we gain some more liberty over cannabis plants that everything will fall into place. I mean, the main problems with drug misuse in, in, in Britain actually stem from um, uh, alcohol misuse, uh, uh, smoking heavily, uh, over-the-counter uh, over drugs being uh, misused, um, prescription drugs being misused, and then we've got the whole crack, heroin, cocaine, sort of, you know, self-indulgent behaviours, um, all kinds of, you know, uh, stimulant misuse. We've got all of these things that are really uh, uh, sharp and uh, urgent problems that are really affecting people's lives. And to talk specifically about things which are, it, it, I, I will use this word fetish because it's a fetish of a fetish of a fetish. Because we start off, we are ourselves, and as I said earlier on, we are permeable to the whole of uh, the, our environment. And we've kind of narrowed it down to a plant. And then who can actually uh, supply that plant and for what? So we've kind of made a fetish of the, of the, of the substance and the function of, of, of what is really a, a quintessential uh, uh, issue about human liberty and our status as subjects yeah. of this realm yeah um i'm gonna take this as a point point to interject and say yeah you, again yeah you're entirely right and i've repeated that analogy probably 30 times since i heard you say that to me just a couple of weeks ago because it so perfectly encapsulates something that has been scratching under the surface in my consciousness for a long time i <laughs> kind of got in trouble to be honest with you from this uh, the cannabis community several years ago when i was i was all drugs that was the argument i made i went look i'm pro cannabis which means i'm pro heroin which means i'm pro crack i'm pro the access to the drug the drug is benign it is inactive cannot do nothing it's not sneaking into kids bedrooms and getting them them hooked on it the, the whole theories of addiction and chemical hooks and all this shit manipulated science and i did a, a documentary about lsd with the bbc and the victoria derbyshire show and I got in so much shit and people were like, you're harming the movement. You're muddying the waters. You're mixing up these substances and was kind of, yeah, probably shouldn't have, but I was kind of uh, beaten into submission. And I kind of went, all right, I'll concede. I'll focus entirely on cannabis. And in that kind of, again, the same as a lot of other people got lost within the minutiae of that. And I can understand for a lot of people how and why. But I'm hoping for a lot of my listeners and viewers that maybe have it intrinsically, instinctively, a bit of a, a backlash towards this internally, is that you've, you've got to then have that empathy. You've got to be able to exactly like get off the shop floor, go and observe the, the, the mechanisms, the matrix in which we live and the people and the stations in which they're positioned, because we're all cogs in a giant machine kept there artificially, as you're stating, by their ability to control the outcome of our lives. I mean, Christ, you could take a kid from any background, regardless of what it is, and go and give them an ayahuasca experience and make sure they're not full of debt, whatever else. They could go off and do anything. Everybody who share a common blueprint, and yes, through epigenetics and all the rest of it, things change. But I have an expression that I believe more than I believe anything I've ever believed in my life. And that is that if I was born you, raised as you, and lived as you, I would be you. And what I extrapolate from that then is there's one consciousness. So therefore, if it's not right, that something is not right for me, it's not right for anybody. So as you said, it's about getting back, or as I alluded to earlier, kind of getting back to that we are nature. As you said, that we've worked so hard to separate ourselves from these things when 
that is what is creating the consequences. That is the perception that people have of that that heroin user, that crack user. And you, you know what I mean? I've just cracked open uh, Carl Hart's latest book, Dr. Carl Hart. He, he took some flack recently uh, because he came out and went, you know what? I've just started my fifth year as a recreational uh, heroin user. And he explained that obviously, you know, he can, he's still got his positions at two uh, prestigious universities, writing his book, raising a family and all the rest of it. And there were people within all forms of activism and corners that were just a bit, whoa, were thrown by it. And it kind of really did put the, uh, I don't know what the analogy is here, but it separated the group, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, since then, I've been really acutely aware of this, and I've tried to get the cannabis people to understand that actually what's happening now, to go back to our earlier point about the importance of language, is we're singing from their hymn sheet. They've got us begging for legalization which, as I've been exploring over the past few episodes, and as Dennis McKenna kind of agreed that I hit on the head last week, is that prohibition is basically the end, the last kind of death throw of, uh, sorry, legalization is the de death throw, the last grasp effort of prohibition to hold that system. To go, okay, we can't outright ban these things, so what we can do is control their outcomes. So we're now seeing ketamine clinics, we're soon going to see MDMA and DMT clinics, and in those settings they are very homogenized, very standardized and hygienic and that you're not going to have that same revelatory experience. You're not going to, you know, talk to the machine elves or see the greys or all of these other different kinds of experiences you can have on these really high dose entheogenic experience uh, compounds in the right set and setting. And I think that that is just, it's going to allow us that little bit further exploration. So as we're seeing a lot now, LSD was tune in, turn on, drop out. Then it became mono, microdose it because it helps your productivity. We're now seeing the same with MDMA of going, that's the rave drug, 90, sweaty. Let's get cuddly and dirty around a, a big base scoop. You know what I mean? Now it's like, no, no, no. We're going to keep you together as a couple because it's more economically viable for you to stay together. We're going to use it to treat veterans coming back from war zones. Why? So we can rehabilitate them and get them straight back out there again. They're, they're mm -hmm. weaponizing these substances from underneath us. They're now going, all right, what have we done? We've created a pandemic with uh, an epidemic of, of alcohol, alcoholism, or now as they call it, alcohol abuse disorder. Don't know why they changed the language. Um, so then they're going, all right, let's use ketamine. And let's use other substances to deal with that. Not again, so they can make them sober, but so they can get them back to a regular maintenance use of the drug again. And this again, is the fear of uh, the spiritual side, though. Again, it always has to be a pragmatic benefit for the material dimension, the particular system that we live in. And so we end up arguing in their terms. And it is all down to language. You're so right, because I, I, uh, no, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't see, uh, bless you, I didn't see... Um, your Victoria Derbyshire uh, episode, I imagine that the language wasn't as rigorous as, as it might be um, based upon, you know, the learning that you've done since then about this, because as soon as, you know, people say, well, oh, so you want to legalise all drugs now. Um, you know, we're just trying to legalise cannabis. But that whole premise, that whole linguistic uh, structure that we're creating it, it, it is, is actually an, an, an illusion in, in a very real sense. And we need to get to that because ultimately we have to recognize that what legality means is not actually the status of an object, but actually the status of a human. So the only things that could be crimes, I've never, I've never seen a criminal case about anything other than what somebody has done or not done human always so a human it's Every always case. that so legality <clears throat> is something that you do 
that that is not covered by criminal law and illegality is something that you do or fail to do it could be an omission if you have a duty of care to do something you know you've got to stop the train because it says red and and you do, and you just don't do anything mm. uh, you say well i didn't do anything well no but you know your omission yeah. is a crime mm-hmm. so what's the difference between you acting illegally or this idea that a substance is illegal because we imagine it's t- entirely the same thing that i really i'm just playing with words here to suggest it's different different mm-hmm. and that what i'm doing is an exercise in so in in just i'm being pedantic about yeah. semantics in a way whereas law is words and that means that it's not that you can just think of some other words to describe the law the law is the word and it's nothing more it's a bit like a building is made of those bricks mortar plaster and, and everything that's what it is mm-hmm. and the law is those words and when you play with them using common parlance ordinary everyday speech to describe it you may get away with it, but otherwise you may end up creating a complete sort of straw man edifice that is unassailable and it's more problematic to deal with. Mm-hmm. And the reason people don't think that there's any difference between these ideas, so I'll give you two ideas. One is uh, a drug which is illegal to possess without um, lawful authority, uh, exemption or license. And uh, what I mean by that is that, like, a police officer has a lawful authority. He doesn't need a license to take the cannabis or other drug off you. Mm-hmm. And um, Or you could have a, a, a license issued by the Home Office to have that. Or you could just have an exemption. There could just be a broad-based exemption to say, well, you know, possession of, of, of a certain amount of cannabis that's, that's not involved with com- commerce is is completely allowed you could just do that with the existing existing law so is a drug which is illegal to possess without license exemption or authority an illegal drug because an illegal drug doesn't exist in law let's be very very clear there's no such thing although judges sometimes use that expression um it's actually entirely false Mm-hmm. And the reason we accept it so readily as the same is because of a figure of speech that we use mm-hmm. all the time. And that that what figure of speech, and I, I have to be sort of, whenever I say this, I, I'm always a little bit careful because people are not familiar with the expression I'm going to use and it, it kind of phases them and they start thinking, oh, oh, you know, I can't keep up with this now, I'm losing it. But it's, it's, it's nothing to, to actually fear it's just called a a transferred epithet and what it means is that we give our quality the human quality to an object Mm -hmm. so instead of saying i'm I'm looking to buy a a stick to help me with my walking i i give it to the object and say i want to buy a walking stick even Mm -hmm. though that stick will never take the dog out for a walk now of course, if I was to say that to you, if you said, I've got to buy a walking stick next week, and I said, don't you mean the stick to, t- to help you with your walking? You would think I'd be ridiculous. And I am, because we know exactly what you mean. The same way we know that a disabled toilet isn't a broken toilet, it's a toilet for disabled access. So 
go back to what I'm saying about the law. It's made of words. And as soon as you start using these shortcuts and these expressions, what you've actually done is cut yourself out of the equation. And when I say the equation, what I mean is that law, and this is back to the administration I was talking about at the top of the show, is that law balances your liberty as a, as a subject with public protection. That's it's what its, its laudable goal is. So that they don't sort of say, well, in order to stop crime, everybody's uh, locked down, like they did with the coronavirus, just an experiment, really, just to see if we can do it, lock everybody down. Mm. They don't do that. They say, well, you know, if you go out equipped with a knife and you've got or tools for robbery, uh, burglary, that, you know, then that action in the interest of public safety, we will make a law about that. So, so they don't just like, Yeah, so they don't just like block everything. They make an equation to try and balance reasonable liberty with reasonable public protection. Mm -hmm. And that equation is completely destroyed by the idea of the illegal object with drug law or cannabis law, if you prefer to talk about that, because mm -hmm. what happens is, is that you act illegally just by having some cannabis in a drawer somewhere that, as you say, doesn't do anything. It doesn't encourage children. It doesn't do anything. It's just in a drawer. It's completely mm -hmm. benign. And yet, because there's no proportionate regulations about the so social harms and your liberty at all, then you have no rights. You are enslaved by the idea of that object because in a way you are that object now because mm. you believe that that cannabis is illegal. And this is the way that the whole system thinks. It mm. operates on the premise that it is illegal and therefore there's nothing that you can do. But actually it's an entirely false notion based upon this transferred epithet idea mm. that because something is illegal to possess without all of these caveats that you could actually be allowed to have, which is what we want. That's exactly what we want. We want the law to use those regulatory options, not regulating cannabis or drugs, really. They're regulating you and your access to the effects, which is what it's really about. You're accessing your conscious mind, sorry, they're regulating the conscious mind through these. But instead of allowing peaceful dominion over the self to do that, they're saying, well, no, it is illegal. Now, as soon as you believe that you can legalize it, mm -hmm. you're falling into the trap of all or nothing, absolutism, because then people are going to say, oh, you want to legalize all drugs, how are you responsible? Even legalizing cannabis, is, it sounds irresponsible to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, part of the fact that it's, it's, as I say, it's a misnomer because it, it's absolutist. So they say, oh, so you want children to have uh, cannabis, do you? You want it okay to, to, to make, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, uh, cannabis brownies and just, you know, pretend it's normal cake, do you? And just let people eat it and see what happens. Is that right. what you're talking about? Well, so, well, no, no, I don't mean that. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, we should be regulated. We should be this. But you said legalization of a thing, which means that it's a, you're doing the same mischief as as as, as what the, the government are doing in a way that you're presenting something as it's all or nothing. It's a kind of binary 
between legality and illegality of objects. And that makes yeah. us slaves because slaves were deemed as property mm-hmm. and drugs are property. And as soon as you give the legal agency to the drug through this reversal of speech, which is, seems very natural to us, mm-hmm. which is why people don't quite get what I'm saying now, because their mind starts thinking, yeah. Hang on, this can't be right. I've been talking about legalization of cannabis for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, mm-hmm. I've been talking about this. Yeah. How could this guy come along today, never heard of him, and, and start saying I'm talking rubbish? But this one thing I'm, I'm, I'm certain about is that what I'm, I'm talking now is, is legally correct, is yeah. that there is no such thing. Cannabis cannot be legal or illegal. And the legal drug idea is as is, is, is insidious as the illegal drug idea, because this is how they create what we call the artificial divide. And the artificial divide is often seen, you see these things on Facebook, you know, cannabis on one side, green, alcohol on the other side, red, legal, illegal, or the other way around, sorry, illegal, legal, and then uh, a list of uh, um, characteristics of the user that cannabis users don't don't kill people, they don't do this, they don't do that, whereas alcohol does this. And it's this binary thing. Yeah. Well, firstly, I never attack alcohol users or anybody else because I am the possibility. We are all the possibility of being permeable to any psychoactive substance according to our behavior. If we behave badly, that's the time the law should come in. So what we're trying to rescue here, uh, is the threshold for interference by authorities. So there should be a certain point. So you know, you, you could do some drugs in your house it's nobody's business what you're doing or even w- what you're using. It is purely a private matter between you and your associates, colleagues, friends, or even just yourself. It makes It's nobody's business. But as soon as you go outside and mug somebody uh, to buy your next whatever it is, that's when the law should be sort of saying, okay, you know, you can't just streak down the street in the society naked, even if you think it's appropriate because you've taken a very powerful psychedelic without any kind of structure or supervision. You suddenly think it's okay to run around naked. This is when, you know, society says, well, hang on a second. There's something here that we need to do. And that is lost through this kind of binary idea that a thing is either legal or illegal, as opposed to judging a human being based upon what they do. And yeah. that's the way they treated slaves. They never saw them as, 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 as personalities, as individuals, uh, as, as rights-bearing at all. They became property. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, in a way, one of the problems is, is that we see ourselves as property. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, to, 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 to shoot down sacred cows like uh, Peter Tosh, and, you know, who says legalise it, and they play that at 420. Uh, you know, I hear it being played at 420. It's... Things have to move on and understanding has to move on. And this is one of the great things about drugs is that this idea was born of a realization as part of of a drug experience because a drug experience allows somebody to view the situation from another angle. I think it was Einstein said, you can never solve a problem at at the level of the problem. You have to be able to see above the problem and, and, and see it in situ in context to really understand what to do about it. So that's where you know professionals and experts come in with all kinds of problem solving 
is that they've got the experience to understand what that problem really is. Yeah. Whereas yeah. some people, there's a problem with water coming into the boat. They just get a cup and they just keep bailing it out and they would do that forever. Where somebody else would say, no, you need to fix that hole. Otherwise, yeah. your whole life's wasted. It's... And it's that kind of mentality that will break this endless cycle because we've been we've been in this loop for a very very long time mm -hmm. and therefore I, I i just encourage listeners and viewers to to be prepared to to be flexible to be fluid this whole idea that what some drugs can do for you is to create this new ideas neuroplasticity new mm -hmm. connections is let go of some of the baggage of the language and the terminology that we're all using well, most of us are using, because it's not serving as well. There's a huge qualitative difference between the idea of controlled drugs and illegal drugs. Now, bear in mind that the, the controlled, controlled drugs is the official legal term, and it's much better than illegal drugs because control implies regulation. You know, you don't control a car by just putting it in the garage. You know, you, you go out and, and you do all of the braking and steering maneuvering. That's So what we're looking for are those regulations. And it's not that you're regulating drugs, you're regulating people. And I, I, I go further with this. So I, I, I go further and further with it to break the mold. The illegal legal drugs misnomer is the most important. But I don't like any dehumanizing uh, rhetoric about this. So even this idea of a war on drugs, it's so wrong. I mean, it's so dehumanizing and it's literally incorrect because as we've said before, there's, everything's a drugs from sugar upwards, as it were, um, sugar to heroin, uh, they're all drugs, but of course they're not having a war on, on drugs in any sense of the, word, of the words because they are actually creating a protection racket to market certain drugs, pharmaceuticals, alcohol, tobacco, etc. So those are being given um, free, you know, people have been given carte blanche effectively. I know there's other regulations about those, those things from outside the Misuse of Drugs Act at the moment, mm -hmm. but let's be clear, the Misuse of Drugs Act doesn't actually exclude alcohol and tobacco. This is some, a mistake that I saw David Nutt make a, many, many years ago uh, as, as students with Sensible Drug Policy talk where he did a Venn diagram, which is just like circles representing groups of people or ideas. And he had the sort of the misuse of drugs act in one circle, and then he had alcohol and tobacco in other circles. He said, well, they are outside the misuse of drugs act. Actually, the misuse of drugs act, although they never, when they envisaged it in 1970, when we were preparing it, um, really thought about alcohol and tobacco being drugs. They never sort of came out and said, well, this law is not about alcohol, tobacco, or pharmaceuticals. They just said drugs, and it's any drugs yeah. um, that can be misused. And of course, it is the misuse of drugs act, not the use of drugs act. So, it intend the intention was to differentiate between drugs which can be misused and cause social problems, and drugs which have uses mm -hmm. uh, and, and can be used peacefully or or, or, or uh, you know, with, with good intent. Yeah. So, sorry, you know, I'm, the, I'm, eager, I'm, I'm eager to jump, um, jump back in. Sorry. Uh, yes. All right. Um, so, yeah, I think you covered some some brilliant points that I think I just wanted to kind of 
I guess not necessarily translate, but uh, reiterate in my own tongue and verbiage uh, for any listeners that may have missed the point. It is not by any way us two being arseholes about this. Obviously, I've I've taken a lot of flack personally uh, over the past couple of years for really digging into language because I discovered exactly that. There is legalese. This is the legal definition an interpretation and understanding of what this word means within the realm of the judiciary that is related to judicial and the, the, the everything, CPS, police, court crimes, all of that stuff, all of that. So that is with it legally operates within that. Then we have obviously our dictionary defined common language, which often there are crossovers in a Venn diagram of these where the same word means often two very, very different things. And you came with a wonderful, uh, uh, narrative there of saying like say a knife a chef for example you walk down the street yeah with a knife tucked into your waistband cops are going to pull you over because that knife they suspect you are carrying unlawfully not illegally so again very nuanced of difference in in legal is a very black and white thing so like rape for example is illegal it's not you're getting done for unlawful rape so there's this this real nuance within the subtle difference of legal and lawful so there's one of the main ones that we need to be aware of because if we don't, exactly as Daryl's saying, we fall into these false dichotomies and we create these these binaries that we then end up camping on. We go, well, I'm this, I'm not that. And so we see this in legalization versus decriminalization, so-called medical versus rec, you know, CBD versus THC. It's it's the system trying to, in my opinion, correct itself so that it can have its cake and eat it. It wants and needs there to be the mechanism that it can go, aha, you person I don't like, you bad person that we are racist, classist against, you have an object that we can use this current interpretation of this antiquated system to to criminalize, to penalize you, to remove you from that situation, to hinder your progress in life, to limit your conscious expansion, as, we, as we're seeing here. And I think it, it is a point that we have to then come back to is, yeah, all respect to Peter Tosh, to Bob Marley, to every living legend that has ever stood and fought for cannabis for any drug that has seen a person's inalienable right to alter and play with their consciousness look if we let kids play dizzy ducks or whatever you folks call it wherever you're from which is where a toddler spins the fuck around until they pass out effectively that's them getting high until you go through puberty you don't get a gyroscopic sort of mechanism within your brain so you then start producing guess what these things are going to be they're going to be endocannabinoids uh, endogenous cannabinoids within the system so they're getting high off an action yet we're not criminalizing it then think of your joggers for example you know we we they we now know that runners high for example is again is endogenous cannabinoids uh, within the system yet we're not trying to criminalize the action of them running around in lycra we're not seeing people you know jogging at traffic lights and getting pulled over going you're going to go for a run aren't you you're going to go get high aren't you so it, it is real we need to draw out these spaces because if we allow them which is what they want to legalize it then what they do is they ignore the, the bullshit scenario and system they've created and put a whole new operating system of bullshit on top of that where it's not only that we've then, yeah, you've won back green, but they now get to come and approve each of your paintings. They get to come in, as you said, make sure how much you've got in your house. And while they're there, they get to look at all the other things you're doing. So we're then further giving up more liberty for a slight victory that ultimately is is quite ferric. Is it really worth this surrender when actually millions of people now within legal marketplaces in places like California and Canada are still operating outside of that legal system because it doesn't serve their needs. 
So therefore, if, if legalization doesn't serve our needs, we need to then fight for something else. And I think this is where, again, that language is so important because we don't currently have it. We're given that false binary of going, oh, you're not legalized. You mean decriminalize. And I'm like, well, that, yes, in a certain way, because when people are actually saying legalize in my community, they're not understanding this nuance. What they mean in their heads is to make legal what is currently not legal for them to do. Yes, it's that simplistic. But in terms of the way the language is structured, the act of legalization is to make legal legal. So therefore, you bring it into this legalese framework of regulations and restrictions, as you say. But then we're giving them this power, this autonomy, as you say, we're surrendering it to the oppressor, to the people that for 50, 60 years have broken down our doors, vilified us, criminalized us, searched us, going through airports, you know, going into courtrooms and all sorts of other dehumanizing actions that they've um, subjected us to over these decades. And now we're going, oh, oh, Mr. Oppressor, if you just gently lift the boot off or, you know, can we polish the boot? Maybe that'd be really nice. It'd be softer on my neck. It's we've lost exactly that. This this thing we need to really stand up and we need to put ourselves back at, at, at the in the equation at every step. And it, the the difficulty we face is that it's not as pretty to speak it, it, without using sound bites and, and snappy things because it it, it mm -hmm. becomes unwieldy to actually say what we actually mean. And it isn't so simple to mm -hmm. actually. Well, it goes, it goes, it, sorry, it goes. Yeah, it goes back to what you were saying before about um, that that rhetoric trick that we did with surrendering human autonomy onto an object in sentencing. It was basically just to make English smaller. If you like, I like to read literature from you know hundred plus years ago. You you're reading three pages, and he said one sentence because of how we we spoke in such a way. Now we're speeding up our language and shortening it. So another one of these binaries that obviously I'm exploring in videos and concepts at the minute is this medical concept, which mm. is absurd because the correct terminology in language is medicinal use of cannabis, but that, that's not sexy. It doesn't fit in, in your hashtag. It's not a search engine optimized thing, whereas medical cannabis is. But exactly- yeah, as we You still want to categorize it. You're still trying mm. to, to categorize it. Yeah. And you know how, how crazy it sounds that, you, you know, you, you might have a few aches and pains, but you want to relax with some cannabis, for example. You know, to say that this is a medical use, a recreational use, or a spiritual use, and then, you know, I've actually been in courts and they've said, well, I've heard cases about medicinal, but I suppose this is recreational now. How ridiculous. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not reality. When you take something, it, it, it's, it, it's much more uh, holistic than that, isn't it? It works in so many different levels, and your prime objective may be to to solve some emotional or physical discomfort by doing it, but to actually break it down into these divisions. It's all about this, these divisions of self actually that is happening is that we are complete beings and rather than present ourselves as, as this magnificent uh, uh, possibility of, of, of being harmonious and, uh, and well, is that we divide ourselves up into all of these these subcategories for approval, uh, like you were saying. But I, 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 I'm very wary about talking about using a, a substance like like psilocybin. You know, they're saying there's a there's a petition running at the moment, and I, I'm I'm not against it, but I'm, I'm aware of the problems of it. That they, they want to allow psilocybin to be used in the therapeutic context for particular conditions that do not 
respond well to conventional treatments under the auspices of a qualified psychiatrist and clinic to give particular um, doses at particular in particular protocol um, of commercially produced um, synthetic psilocybin. And that is another kind of Trojan horse meant idea, supposedly, when you question it to say, well, once we've done this, once we've removed the stigma that psilocybin isn't just for, for crazy hippies, but it is actually it has a use, then we can take that elsewhere. But what we've really done is we've divided ourselves. I mean, it doesn't even apply to us. It applies to, to supposedly other people less fortunate than us. So I'm signing a petition for David Nutt or Ben Sessa or somebody else to... It was uh, just just to, to clarify, it was the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group that commissioned. So yeah. just to give people a bit of context, uh, I personally haven't signed it and, and will not because as, as you're saying, it is... Even the wording of it is but they want to reschedule it. They want to reschedule uh, psilocybin. Or, and effectively, I think what they're looking to do is actually move in uh, an analog because obviously they're producing psilocin. Because when we eat a magic, a so-called magic mushroom, yes. or we, we convert it through various means, unless, of course, you use lemon tech, um, which is something that I learned in America, which is wonderful, where you just basically soak your mushrooms in lemon juice for 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, and then down it. And basically, you've done the catalyst conversion. So you don't get gut ache and you get to the psilocin a lot faster. Um, but yeah, I think that that's where they're going. I mean, look, they did the same thing with cannabis. They have not rescheduled cannabis. What they did is the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act, cannabis is schedule one. It has no accepted medicinal value. They then, under the 2001 regulations, per a caveat they did in the 2018 law, um, they created a schedule two for medicinal cannabis, um, which they described, uh, sorry, medical cannabis is the words they actually used, hyphenated, capitalized, very important if you understand how language works. Um, the definition of which is a CBPM, a cannabis-based medicinal product designed for human consumption, which when you look at that under the legislation says, is slash and or a preparation is. So they're saying that all of these lang all of this language says that it's cannabis because they have to. They have to close the loop on the legal aspect of it because it has to make sense in law. Even if the law is bastardized and it's immoral, it has to be circular. Everything has to reference back into it which is why the, the supposed position of people like yourselves and judges and others within it, the human element, are supposed to find the fragility, the fallibility, and to test that fairness at every point. And we've completely lost that. And as you say, I think the this is the perfect example of it for me. I mean, this, I, I'm not going to name the individual, but I've tried to get on a doctor, maybe one that was mentioned or not allegedly, might have been one of those people that was just spoke of, and have been refuted by their employer, um, and I'm not allowed to have a conversation with them. And basically, I just wanted to talk about, you know, how is it fair that ketamine can be sold at six grand for three infusions uh, to treat uh, depression and alcoholism in clinics in Brist uh, Bristol and London, but then festival goers that take it in there are treat like they, you know, you may as well have taken in half a fucking key of fucking cork to your average festival since what happened at Boomtown and others and the deaths related to it. They've completely disproportionized it. They've actually lifted it in, in classifications with the class B now as well um, but obviously they didn't move the schedule because otherwise how would they create all these clinics and all this profitable market space for it well who's gonna hold the keys that, that that's what it's all about ultimately it's a battle that's going on and we've seen the way that pharmaceutical companies have behaved over the coronavirus thing because they you know they've completely yeah. skewed the evidence of their so-called vaccines and i'm not going to get into any kind of rabbit holes about 
that situation other than to point to the power that they have to corrupt politicians. Corporations uh, uh, can be the problem. We're seeing the rise of corporations now trying to get onto the bandwagon. And even these, they are, they're subject to, they're liable to, to do this, this lazy, lazy misrepresentation about things. Um, I mean, a lot of those psilocybin groups, when you see them um, um, promoting their wares on social media, they use a, a, an emoji or even a photograph of Amanita because Amanita looks so much, Amanita muscaria, that's the, 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 the red fungi with, with white spots. It looks so much more sexy than a, than a psilocybe, doesn't it? Mm. And, and so, oh, it's okay. We'll just show um, psilocybes as Amanitas, notwithstanding the fact that there'd be loads of teenagers who think, oh, that's that's what they're talking about. Oh, we'll go and eat five, uh, you know, whatever. Five four grams of that in darkness, fresh, Jesus like, Christ. Three or four of those uncooked uh, with a bit of lemon juice. Uh, yeah, I My mean... Stomach hurts thinking about that. Wow, that would not be cool. But just think about how many people are so desperate to be cool and to, and to use anything that seems convenient even though substantially it's completely, it's a category error. And when we use our language to talk about, you know, we want to legalize uh, psilocybin or, or something like that, whatever they're trying to say, is that that's a category error as well, because we're actually making something that isn't true. We're actually creating a whole edifice that isn't even there. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't mind um, those corporations so much getting into the bandwagon, but they want to get it onto the bandwagon, but they want to hold the keys. And when I say the key is that what these molecules represent as they're out there, as if we're all permeable to, is that these are the key molecules that actually allow the functioning of the human being to be, to, to work on different levels. There must be an infinite number of different ways of being that are, are chemical realities based upon the ingestion of some psychoactive substance and the key those molecules open up a a pathway to see reality differently there are different realities some of which may be legitimate some of which may be illusory but that's entirely a matter for discrete groups and individuals to determine whether or not you know the messages or the perceptions they're having are important or or entirely uh, hallucinatory but those keys are really important and they want to hold those keys. And I think if pharmaceutical companies get the keys to, to, to drugs, as they want with cannabis, they want with, with, with magic mushrooms, and they ultimately will do with ketamine and everything else uh, that has, has any kind of specific medical benefit. And I think almost any drug, the reason why it's popular, the reason why it's a drug is that it has an effect and it's interesting at the very, very least. But do we really want to have power to, to those people? But at the same time, what they're doing is that they are helping remove stigma and they are educating the public about the possible benefits of these things from this quagmire of um, you know stigma and uh, believing that people who, who, who use these things are completely deluding themselves and wasting their time at best. So what we really need is concurrent to all of these like Trojan horse ideas that may not even be Trojan horses, but just power grabs, is this idea of cognitive liberty, 
this idea that you know that, that each individual has a divine entitlement just by their existence to be free to explore their own consciousness or, or, or consciousness not that we own it but it's that if they use the, the right language I would be less angry about about this because then they would be doing two things at once they wouldn't be profiteering out of the criminalization of everybody that isn't fulfilling their criteria which is exactly how their business model works mm -hmm. they can't sell ketamine at six thousand pound if there's somebody outside the clinic saying you know what i'll sell you a gram now for 20 uh, for 20 quid there's 10 doses there based upon their protocol you know go home with a, a friend who's who's done a bit of uh counseling or psychotherapy or somebody you really trust and and, and start a line of that and uh, see how you get on save yourself the fortune but no that guy selling that ketamine is is could be in real trouble they'll probably call the police uh, you know the clinic will say no there's somebody outside our ketamine clinic selling ketamine you know because otherwise they're not going to work so their business model is predicated upon the premise that it, that it is illegal except for us yeah. And whilst I understand that there has to be a kind of an evolution into understanding these things and that doctors and scientists have a very important role in that, I don't like it when, when, when they misuse the framework and, and, and misrepresent the framework and don't support this idea that people can do it. In fact, they go out of their way to say, we're clearly not recommending this. For any other people outside it, you've got to have soft cushions, you've got to have ambient lighting, you've got to have a qualified doctor. You know, all of these things. They've even tried to patent that idea that, that their, their therapy is done in, in a room that is yeah. conducive to having a relaxing experience. You know, we're going to put a blindfold yeah. on the guy and put headphones on him. Oh, well, that, yeah. I never thought of that before, you know, taking drugs and, and chilling out. Sorry, I just want to say, uh, yes. I had uh, Danny Kushlick, Danny Kushlick, uh, yeah, founder, no, founder of Transform. Um, yeah. And yeah, he brought up when I had him on. Definitely got to get him back on. Brilliant guy. Um, the, yeah, there was a company trying to patent a pillow. Uh, no, so, yeah, there was a pillow. Yeah, pillow and a weighted blanket. Yeah. So they basically got this is a therapeutic drug blanket. It's only, and it's like, we figured that out as teenagers. We had drug rugs, as we called them. Everyone grabbed your drug rug. We were going down the beach on a Friday. You know, you'd set up everyone every cozy. Everyone would wrap up around the fire. You'd have certain softness, oh, softest thing in the world when you're on MDMA. It's like, oh, <laughs> we figured that shit out. Where, all of this, they have stole from us. So this is the, the argument I had uh, with um, a certain representative from uh, one of the cannabis clinics at Product Earth, was that the only reason they know anything that they know is because when they were spending decades saying that we were lunatics and that our drug use was destroying us and causing all our problems, we did the hard evidence and research we're the ones that proved and provided these data sets. And now all of a sudden you're interjecting and going, oh, 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 yeah, okay, I'll sell you it. I'll be like, fuck right off. Do you know what I mean? The medicinalization of certain compounds, I agree, is necessary. There will be obviously certain protocols that you can make it, it you know, hit a certain efficacy rate, um, you know, 90% of whatever in certain circumstances with whatever. But that is always only ever going to be small. It can only ever be small. Because actually, if we healed the trauma in culture, if we were just allowing 16-year-olds to just go and pick magic mushrooms, the same as I did, just go off and we're going to camp next to the golf course, and then at 5 a.m. we're going to get up, and you eat two, you put one, you eat two, you go back and you heat them on a camp stove, and all of these rituals, these rites of passage that 
they're the, if we had those fucking things, we wouldn't need those things. So they're trying to, and this is what I'm saying about yeah. it being the last death throws. They're trying to cage us in, trick us into this, this verbal matrix, and then we'll stand there and defend it for them. We'll self-police in this pseudo-psychedelic oculus where we assume that everybody is, you know, having the same trip, the same experience, and none of us will be allowed to, I don't know how the night me and three mates did on acid, where we just basically imagined a lettuce being God. I don't know why we had a lettuce in the house and it was the lettuce head and all hail the lettuce. And it was an absurd abstraction viewed as probably fucking, uh, what's the word, uh, as, as having individual psyche, psyche, uh, psychiatric breaks, you know, like our psyche is deluded and deranged, but we had fucking fun. The next morning we woke up and we laughed about it. We, you know what I mean? We moved on with our lives. It was, we, we should be allowed that play, that absurdity, yes. that loss of... of Corporations sanitize everything, don't they? Like that yeah. bedra can. But it's like this shopping mall kind of mentality. You have the big companies and they push out all the independents. I remember in Leeds and the Corn Exchange and various places in town, there were so many independent shops and goth shops and punk shops and weird stuff. And they're all disappearing. And same with clubs. There used to be all these independent music venues where small acts would, would, would play or you get really alternative music. And now it's all sanitized uh, uh, and corporate and bland. And, you know, this, this is the future of, of taking something which is exciting and, uh, and try to sanitize it. And, and part of the problem with the language is, is that we, we try to talk about, about drugs, but really the communication is chemical. So it's, it's what we call it ineffable. If people don't know what that word means, it just means it's beyond language so that you... The experience of, of taking any drug really obviously more appropriate with psychedelics uh, I, I guess but any, any substance you can't really communicate to another person in words what that's about and yet people have spent years trying you've got great writers Huxley and other people will try to open the doors of perception in words but at the end of the day you can read all of those books Carlos Cassidy do whatever you like you will never really know what it's like to take peyote, not even close. You wouldn't even get to first base. In I mean, it's good to talk because you then you can describe, you know, how to how to take it, what the right dose is. You can use science and and empiricism to describe the context of the experience, but you'll never get into the experience because the communication is not verbal. It is a transformatory experience based upon a physiological change of being, so that everything is different. And we don't have the language, we never will have the language. The only way you can communicate what cannabis is like is say, here, try this, because then you're opening that, that pathway to communicate what that is about. And yeah. trying to break it down, to break it down into these uh, discrete functions um, uh, with scientific rigor, and they've even tried to remove, suggest that they can replicate the experience without the, the psychedelic effects, you know, just mm. to use. And, and of course, we we'll, you know we know it's it's the whole thing. It's the whole entourage of, of, of different alkaloids and other things and, and set and setting that will actually be therapeutic or will be interesting. Um, that's at stake. Do, do you think and, that? Sorry. Do, do, do you yeah. think that speaks to their motives? Because. As, yeah, uh, what did I call it last week? Because uh, me and Dennis brought it up. Uh, the high without the high. 
And it's to me, it speaks towards what they're trying to do. They've mapped in the brain. All right, if you take psilocybin or whatever doses, it'll reduce depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms for four or five weeks. So it feels like to me, if they, to get rid of the high, I mean, that what that does to me is I take, say, LSD or whatever, and I have a high dose and I have an uncomfortable experience, what some might, I would say, incorrectly call a bad trip. Over the next few days, I have what I described on the Victoria Dobbs show as a positive hangover, as in terms of my body feels good, my brain feels good. What I've then got is that period of integration of then going, Jesus Christ, I like, I don't know, like there's one experience I, I speak of, then one day I'm going to do a video just on it, of like when I ate LSD and I was watching Austin Powers, they had like a break from sort of reality and I lived through all of these different beings dying on my bathroom floor, cuddling a bath mat. And like talking about the synesthesia I felt of hearing the sound of da 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 because it was a DVD like on loop. And that was one of the most better, like the best experience of my life, one of the most difficult. But from that, I became vegan. I woke up the next day vegan. It was just done. I walked into a supermarket and I couldn't see the other shit. It was such a weird, a, a weird instant transformation. It brought me to a level of awareness and empathy that I have never had in my life. Like I just couldn't look at anything suffering without just being emotionally driven to it you know like just just it was my being in essence was to feel empathy and connection because of that experience whereas if they then took the high away all i'd have got from that is a couple of days of being all right cool i wouldn't have had that revelatory experience i think that's what the high is for is yeah you get the reset of certain neurochemistry and you get kind of you know a deflating of certain areas and i think what we're seeing with hemispheric connection and the lighting up of certain parts of the brain is is a cleansing of all that other shit. So of course you're going to feel better. But like I said, I think that abstract experience, especially of something like well, salvia DMT, um, you know, any of your sort of Changa blend mixes and stuff, that you're going into such an abstract world from yourself that there is metaphor, there is meaning within that. And in the same as like we've studied dreaming for centuries, we don't have a fucking clue what it means. You know what I mean? I mean, I'd much rather we could go and treat drugs like love. Do you know what I mean? We have spent centuries writing about it and trying to quantify it, and you can't. And we accept that. And we just go that just you'll be in love. Well, you'll know it when this happens to you. And then it happens and you go, all right. And it's like you're in the club. And the same is, is true of these experiences is we shouldn't be pushing them through legalization as in I don't want to see DMT on every street corner. Do you know what I mean? It's We used to have a, an expression sort of in my community in, in the north and in the people I, I work with around the UK is that if somebody comes to you for DMT, you don't give them DMT. If then at a certain point it arises, that it just like the, the you know what I mean, the, the synchronicity of the universe times it right, and they're kind of in a point of, of, of need and in comfort and there's somebody who can trips it, et cetera, and can do that, then yeah, you, you give it to them. Whereas now there are vendors just selling the carts to anybody and everybody, and people are having experiences that they're not then doing the work to integrate and I think then they're getting and can end up getting more lost. So rather than having this opening experience of going and humbling, which is the point of the psychedelic experience, is to humble you into going, I don't know a lot. I, I can't know a lot. I, I know what's in front of me. I am right now. Anything is a memory that is tainted and is fading forever. And anything beyond me is anxiety and uncertainty that I kind of plot or plan. And whereas some people are now taking these substances and they're fortifying their ego, as it were, rather than having this dissolution of the default mode network and a separation of themselves, like I did, and as my consciousness repeased itself, I mean, after every acid experience, my I feel my consciousness repeat it, and I can almost, for 24 hours, 48 hours, really look at a certain area and go, oh, that's what I want to work on, and keep very that, keep, keep that very, fire open, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's very insightful, and 
I don't think really you can be any kind of drug policy expert uh, and not have at least the basic experiences in, in the drugs you're talking about because it's it, it's really like a blind person trying to describe the colours um, you know that they've been told about. It, 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 it really is quite absurd that uh, a lot of people in drug policy um, pride themselves on their on their abstinence of those substances. And the idea that the high is 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 a dirty word, it, mm. you know, and has to be removed as an unwanted side effect, is quite ridiculous. Like you say, yeah, you, you're going to get high, you're going to have this afterglow of, of integration when when you think about what what's being shown to you. And mm-hmm. and yes, we live in a very drug ignorant society. Ultimately, I mean, if I was sort of a bit more anarchistically inclined, I would I would say, well, you know, I don't mind, you know, um, people being sold DMT cartridges. Um, but because it's a drug ignorant society, there is a transient need for regulation. So, the, or at least, the, the, or, at least the, or at least very least education. Yes. Well, uh, some regulation because it's not it's not the end goal. In the same way that human rights are not the end goal. Ultimately, for you the ultimate. If you live in a utopia, you wouldn't need human rights because what human rights mean is is that somebody's subjugating you oppressing you something's not not right and you have to go to a judge who is not elected he represents some elite body you may even end up in a, in a foreign court because we're still under the auspices of the european court asking for you know for somebody to, to make a decision uh for you and that is is an abdication of responsibility but we need human rights to protect us in order to transcend the fact that we need them so that we have freedom of expression, sufficient area to move so that ultimately we can progress society to to a a better form whereby we're we're less reliant on on, um, contentious legal matters to solve problems, Mm -hmm. you know, that we're working together collectively, communally. Yeah. And in the same way with drugs, ultimately the end goal would be that we live in an educated society, like you say. So perhaps there would be university courses in, in practical uh, drug use, where you know, you know, year one you're exploring cannabinoids and, and other things, and you'll end up in year three uh, doing the DMT. And ultimately, um, we integrate the positive sides of this through a lot of knowing. It, it, into uh, a society where these things are options. They're never compulsory. That's back to cognitive liberty. I want to say cognitive liberty means that you have complete freedom short of interfering with other people's freedoms mm-hmm. to explore that. But the, the flip side of it is, is that they can't force you to take drugs or, or coerce you. I mean, we've We've witnessed quite recently with the, the, the vaccination program this idea of coercion so that informed consent, which is the, the, the prerequisite of the NHS um, mandate really about uh, medical treatment, is that the patient should have informed consent, which is why if you go into hospital, you end up being told 20 times that what, what's, what could possibly go wrong until the point you're a nervous wreck and then you're signing all these forms. Say, I don't mind if you actually dentally remove the wrong leg. Um, you, you know, it's just one of those yeah. things, isn't it? But informed consent is very important. And duress of circumstances and coercion negate that. So if they say that you can't travel 
or you're not allowed to go clubbing uh, unless you take these vaccines and you agree to take it, you never had informed consent. You were forced into doing it. So the idea is that you have the complete freedom not to have or to have whatever it is that, that may benefit you or personally. I mean, there are some reasonable differentiations that should be made via the Misuse of Drugs Act, Misuse of Drugs Act to, to look at how we regulate people with regard to drugs. So I say regulate people with regard to drugs just to keep ourselves in this paradigm. I don't talk about regulating drugs because to be pedantic at this point, drugs don't behave. They will not follow any regulations. You can't tax drugs either. You can only tax people. But I know that's going a bit far, but I have to, I have to do that because it is a very personal, human-centric thing that we're, we're, we're talking about. So education, yes. And how do, what do we educate people is how not to harm themselves and others. So we should have reasonable differentiations, and these are all possible within the Misuse of Drugs Act. And if people really want to read it, because I know a lot of people want to abandon the act and get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think if it is replaced, it will be replaced with something far worse. Uh, believe it or not, even if we do have more access rights to psilocybin and cannabis, people say, great, it's all about that, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will be far more regulation. Is that the Misuse of Drugs Act is an incredible, flexible tool. And the the few things that you should know about it are, firstly, that it does not forbid the use of any drug in Britain except opium. So opium, I think it's a sort of throwback to the Shanghai Conventions, the Opium War, um, that they decided opium use was was not in the interest of society. And that stayed on the legislation so that it is actually illegal to use opium. But cannabis and all the other controlled drugs, there's no crime against using it. Now, people will say, well, how do you use a drug? Because it's, it's, because the drug's not illegal, because we, there is no legality in a substance, and using a drug isn't illegal. Mm-hmm. Ah, so, it's, so it's, the, it's the possession of the drug that's illegal. Well, actually, no, because it's only the possession of the drug in the absence of the exemption or the authority or the license. Mm-hmm. So, and that's the target area because exemptions are beautiful. I mean, they could just exempt, you know, the whole of the general Everybody over a thing. Yeah. Any, any offence with cannabis other than the ones I was talking about, like spiking people's food and giving it to minors without justification. But even um, they're, they're already covered by other legislation. There would be, you know, grievous bodily harm, yes. uh, et cetera, you know, antisocial behaviours for, for the ones we were talking about before, like streaking, et cetera. Yeah. But I mean, if I was if I was sort of redrafting the regulations, this is drugs act. You know, I, I would point to the sort of things that I would say are rightly criminal, whether they're dealt with by that law or, or another law. I think we, mm. you know, we're all aware of what responsible uses are. But those responsible uses are not to your own health, actually, because the misuse of drugs act doesn't set out to say we're going to minimise the harm to yourself. Now, admittedly, that if everybody harms themselves, that has ramifications for society. But we draw the line uh, difference between somebody who might drink too much uh, uh, for his own God or their own good um, uh, and uh, those that, that, that use it responsibly. We don't actually say that, you know, we're going to criminalise 
uh, having more than three drinks a day or something like that, mm -hmm. because we recognize that there's a certain freedom in, in, in not maximizing your health. You don't want compulsory aerobics at seven o'clock, like you might see in China, some societies that, you know, they literally say, right, you know, you've got to, you've got to look after yourself in the interest of, of society. I mean, it's not such a, a terrible idea in some utopian society that everybody works together and, and looks after themselves, but it's certainly not something we want government nowadays to be mandating that, you know, five-a-day vegetables are, in fact, compulsory now. Like, you know, you, yeah. you, you literally have got a shopping basket with not enough vegetables. You've broken the law. And then we need to differentiate that from uses which may actually adversely affect other people directly. You know, that you, and I think alcoholism does fall into that category ultimately. If you are an alcoholic, you do a, a, a affect other people adversely. It is possible that you can go too far. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, the Misuse of Drugs Act is quite a useful uh, tool that it has this incredible flexibility. And if people want to check it out later, um, it's easy to just to, to Google it and get the full act. Don't get a summary because it's always wrong. Wikipedia is full of mistakes. But if you actually look at the legislation, firstly, you will see that there's no crime of use. And I just reminded myself, I forgot to mention um, that um, that is because they want to afford these differentiations between use and misuse. So that's what I'm trying to say. There's a difference between use and misuse. And that's what the law is supposed to do, is, is to do that. So, you know, don't get rid of, of the Misuse of Drugs Act. Uh, I lost my thread what I was going to say before, but I think I think it still makes sense uh, what I was saying. I, th uh, I, th I think I think entirely, in, in actually, there's this something that I was made aware of the other year that I'm still trying to get my my little brain around. The more I've, I mean, I've sat as Mackenzie friend in in magistrates and in Crown, and I've I've watched this system. I've sat in rooms with barristers and heard them speak one way, and then watched them perform. And that's the only way I can describe it because they them fuckers they walk onto a stage and it just just an act it's a pageantry, and so I'm slowly picking up more and more on this. And one of the things I learned was Section 28 of the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971, which is all predicated on belief, so that you can be and there has to be lawful uh, actions by which you can be in possession of a substance if you knowingly weren't in possession of it if somebody puts a drug in your bag for example yeah you you haven't consciously chose possession and it's an interesting one then when it comes to cannabis about cultivation so cultivation is the human act of germination germination is the act of a, a seed sprouting and beginning its life cycle but when a human intervenes with it it is cultivation so yeah. that that requires intention so obviously the feed the birds campaign and others figured out a while ago that if you were to scatter you know, cannabis seed from what they call so-called hemp seed, another one of those horribly binary false language things that we don't have time to get into. Um, but that's not your intention was to feed the bird. Consequently to your intention, cannabis might have grown from that seed, but you didn't germinate, you didn't cultivate it, it germinated. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so that, that would be a principle of law, really, that's mm. pervasive across anything. If you didn't intend it, <laughs> you, you you may not have strict liability. There are laws of strict liability. But then what, what we're seeing now, then, is the way the semantics I have seen from the judges is that you, ex-person in the dock, you knew that cannabis was illegal. So, well, no, you want to, that's bullshit. It's not illegal. So they're, they're built to, I mean, they're building a trap. So I'm wondering if on this sincere belief argument of Section 28, 
whether we can then use awareness and knowledge of the law and legalese so that when they state that this is illegal, it it's not. Our belief at the time of, of possessing the drug or growing the drug or whatever, if your sincere belief from doing the research led you to this conclusion, which is that the drugs cannot be illegal and I am being criminalized because on the auspice that an emphasis that the drug is illegal, although actually I've just I've talked myself out of it because the charges yeah. are possession, well, cultivation, distribution, blah blah blah. But the intention, anyway, I think it, there's something there. Yeah, I, I, I'm not 100 clear whether that's going to be a sort of a, a usable line of defence. I mean, I've just remembered by the way before we get back to that that the the sections that I was going to ask the viewers to to look at. To, so they know what I'm talking about of the Misuse of Drugs Act if they look it up. So I, I lost that bit before. The section right. 7, 22 and 31, because those sections afford the minister who administers the law in tandem with the advisory council. And um, please remind me to ask about the advisory council in a minute, because this is the key that is, another key that is missing out of the equation of justice here, that, mm -hmm. that the advisory council are not doing their job. But those sections enable the minister to afford all kinds of rights to people to do it intentionally, whatever. Now, in terms of what you were just asking, you're almost sort of suggesting that if you've got like a, a sincere uh, belief system that this is for the good of humanity, then it's it's okay to do it. And I, 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 although kind of environmental protesters have come up with that recently with destroying property, toppling statues and things like that, is that the courts actually, through juries, have allowed the idea that there is a greater good in this and that their intentions were to protect the planet mm. uh, or, or some other concern that some people might think is rather twee. But it's, um, it, you know, it, it, it is possible uh, to get a jury to believe that, but it isn't really what the law is about. The law is about telling you, what, you know, what you can do and what you can't do. And even if you've got an idea that it's not quite right, doesn't give you any any yeah. leeway there to go and do it. Um, so I'm not quite sure if, if that would be a working solution. It might be an argument for a jury to get what mm. the court would think was a perverse verdict. You know, there's always that option in the Crown Court. Mm -hmm. Just for not that a barrister would do it, but you could do it as a Mackenzie friend to actually say to the jury, I don't think a barrister would dare, but to say, Well, you've heard everything that his honor is going to say, you will, he's going to tell you that if you're satisfied that this guy was trying to cultivate cannabis, uh, he's guilty, and I'm telling you that is what the law says. Mm -hmm. But you, you, as the jury, you're here as a democratic input, and actually, with no disrespect to the court you're free to ignore everything the judge tells you. It's a matter of conscience. If you believe that this individual was acting reasonably and should not be uh, you know, sent to jail later today for doing this, you have the right to ignore every direction that the judge has given you to find this person guilty. And you can say, you know, say, no, I'm not gonna do it. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna vote, I'm gonna uh, say he's not guilty. So there is always that potential, although, Often they closed that down. There was the, what they call the Diplock Cuts in Northern Ireland when there was sympathy for, um, I, I will use the word terrorist, but I know it's a loaded word because one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Mm -hmm. But people were 
minded to acquit people committing violent acts because of their, you know, their political and social affiliations. And they, they understood there was a, a struggle, a, a war, and that uh, people were being acquitted. And they responded to that by setting up these things called diplock courts without juries or with vetted juries and, and screening the juries and, and other things like that to get the, the, the result they wanted, which was, well, you know, you have broken the letter of the law. There's no way out for you. So really what I'm trying to do is quite responsible in the ways you suggested earlier that here am I, defence lawyer, or former defence lawyer, uh, trying to do these things. That, you know, that's what it says on the tin, that to be a defence lawyer, you should be doing these things. It's not, as the Malaysians thought, you know, very naughty um, yeah. kind of a disposition to try and uh, argue that the law is not always the law. Uh, and that's the way things evolve is people not accepting that things are just as they are. And like I said, the Misuse of Drugs Act is not set in stone in the sense that all these regulations or lack of regulations are there in perpetuity. They are uh, meant to be managed. And this uh, that links me back quite nicely to the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, which David Nutt sat as, as chair for 10 years and nothing ever changed. And he was uh, running the ACMD when Casey, the LSD chemist, was in prison. Mm -hmm. And Casey and I wrote beautiful letters to him, beautiful breakdowns. I mean, to say that I was involved, I have to say it was quite, um, quite a small role that I was playing in the drafting of these documents because he was, was brilliant at it. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and I take my hat off to him uh, as a mentor in this regard. But we gave him the, all the guidance that he needed and that the idea that they were sitting on this idea that alcohol and tobacco were somehow outside of this law, or rather, I should say, correct myself, people producing, manufacturing, selling alcohol are outside the law. They're not. And, we said, and he was always complaining about alcohol, always. And I said, well, you know, just tell the minister that we're going to make alcohol um, a controlled drug, which doesn't really mean that alcohol is controlled. It's another one of those transfer deficits. It's mm -hmm. that we are controlled with respect to alcohol, okay, just to, to flesh it out. And that we then make those regulations under those three sections, 7, 22, and 31, so that everything is reasonable. But I was representing people at that time in off-licenses who have been selling bottles of vodka to 12-year-olds. Mm -hmm. And I, I would make a case, you know, that, that, that you know, that, that they, uh, they'd come in and they, they looked a bit more older than they were. And, you know, they were very persuasive and the, the, the shopkeeper had let them have a bottle of vodka. You know, it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I've seen people get off with like £80 fines for doing that. But if they were under the Misuse of Drugs Act, doing something very naughty like that, it is very naughty, um, you know, selling spirits to children. Mm -hmm. You would be facing the same kind of consequences as somebody who, who did the same thing with a controlled drug. And that would only be fair because the, the yeah. misuse of drugs is meant to be neutral. And what we've got is a completely biased, skewed administration based upon this artificial divide of legal and illegal drugs. So even if you break the law with a so-called legal drug, um, 
There are ramifications for it, but they're of a different order of magnitude. They're completely different. I've had the same magistrates, you know, send people to prison uh, for cultivation of cannabis and, and, and slap a tiny fine on an off-license of business for, 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 for unlawfully selling alcohol to minors. Mm -hmm. And so it is that neutrality. And we wrote to David Nutt at the Advisory Council and we explained all the regulatory structure and we explained many of the points of law and more that I've discussed so far. And I didn't get a reply. And also David Nutt, uh, I, I, I think it was his, his uh, uh, successor, uh, Professor Iveson, um, allowed uh, Magic Mushrooms to become scheduled without any consultation. The Home Office just basically called him around and said, sign this, mm -hmm. and they did it. Um, is that the Advisory Council should be our protector because the Advisory Council is supposed to be an independent body of experts, multidisciplinary experts from all walks of life, veterinary medicine, uh, social sciences and other things. It's missing something a bit more kind of shamanic or spiritual, actually, which is ultimately what it's about. Yeah. Missing, it's missing really drug users as well. Like, or, do you know what I mean? It's It, it feels weird to me that... Yeah, I often say you wouldn't get a tattoo from a tattooist that doesn't have tattoos, but there's also a, something a bit more pervasive here that I discussed with um, Ben Collins. Uh, and we, uh, God, that was quite a while ago uh, on the podcast. And we were talking to about the intersectionality of the LGBTQ plus movement um, and sort of with, with, with drug rights. And it's there as a community and movement always espouse this nothing about us without us. And it would seem absurd that you would put a bunch of straight people into a room to then go and work out yes. the legislation for queer people. And it's, it seems to me it's so ab abstract and alien to me of this idea that you're getting a bunch of people who have studied predominantly from a prejudiced position the detrimental and negative consequences of these substances while refusing to study or accept the positive benefits of them to then make advisements on how extreme the government's approach to this should be yeah it just well the just one of the things i wanted to get out there yeah sorry the home office actually stage managed the advisory council even though they're set up as an independent entity so there's no independent funding for it and they screen appointees who are volunteers actually they get paid expenses mm -hmm. only and people who are certainly not extreme by my standard very moderate um People like um, uh, Neem Eastwood from uh, Release, she applied to be on it. I think, um, I'm trying to remember his name, I think Alex Stevens, an academic uh, who, who's very uh, minded towards reform. Uh, he wanted to be on it. And uh, the Home Office screen it. Uh, the Advisory Council actually sit in, in the Home Office building and uh, they end up talking about the minutiae of some hardly ever used substance. They, 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 they've never had a single meeting about alcohol and tobacco, the two most widely misused drugs in Britain, except in terms of polydrug misuse. So alcohol, mm. you know, obviously has a detrimental effect with, with tranquilizers. So they might mention the word alcohol if you do a complete search of their database. But they, they, they've never discussed uh, scheduling people, businesses involved with alcohol and tobacco. Not to ban those drugs, not, I'm not talking about prohibition, but just to create that equal playing field so we don't have those divisions and that everything is scientifically neutral. They've never done it. 
So the advisory council has let us down because they're failing to really get to grips with the, with the providing legislation and their duties. And really, if we're going to be progressive, we should be fighting for a very powerful advisory council that will work, even though it's not purely a democratic principle. I mean, I do like the idea that, that governments, as supposedly democratically elected bodies, have the power more than judges so that you know judges deciding things about society is very elitist and they're not accountable to us so at least we have this idea of voting even if it seems ineffectual so it's better that ministers decide than government and it's also not a great thing that quangos um like they they sort of abdicated responsibility to manage the economy through the bank of england and they then made a sort of quango, made them uh, their own expert body outside of the minister's remit. So there's a flip side to this. Mm. But nevertheless, under these circumstances, to have a advisory council uh, that's that's working would be a good idea. And I'm afraid, David, no, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, to sit knife at him too much, but, you know, he did actually argue, and I think this is what got him sacked as much as the uh, Equacy, which was uh, horse riding, love, uh, say is more dangerous than yeah. excellent line, which uh, is infamous. And it was, it was, a, it was a good paper. Worth, it. I, I enjoyed reading yeah, it but, because it was, it was put together with great hilarity in mind. I, I believe or it, feel his harm matrix. It was it published in the Lancet. Was, was superb and groundbreaking. Mm. Unfortunately, the sort of the legal context, the understanding of, of the duties that he had and the powers that he had was lacking, which is why he didn't get any traction with that. Because even he believed that actually alcohol and tobacco and things like that are legal drugs outside of the law. But I mean, so I think those kind of uh, fundamental legal myths that he bought into, um, and he even after talking to me, I spent hours with him in Leeds, uh, produced a book uh, about, uh, Drugs without the hot air, how to the problems of legal and illegal drugs, which really mm-hmm. frustrated me that he hadn't got it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know his hands were t- he said his hands were tied. But ultimately, he he said that experts should decide policy, and actually it's an advisory council, and that means to advise ministers. The advisory council never make policy; that is not their role. So. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of just justifying what I'm saying um, so, so as not to sound too non-democratic about things by suggesting that experts have a bigger role and those experts should include perhaps people of a spiritual disposition and members of the public. So it's not, you know, real drug users and people that have experience of rape culture and things like that should be welcome onto the committee. So it's not a, a group, a bunch of suits pontificating about something that they really don't know nothing about quite literally. I mean, you can read all your life that you'll never know. As we've yeah. said before, that the communication that drugs have is on a chemical level, not a linguistic level. So um, I kind of protect myself from that accusation um, by introducing members of the public and other people into that and by saying that it is advice, ultimately the minister will decide Although, again, it's free for the courts to question that on human rights grounds or even common law grounds as to whether the minister is acting uh, reasonably. There's this idea of reasonableness 
in administrative law, which is actually called Wednesbury unreasonableness. And that means that a decision made by a figure in authority should not be so unreasonable that um, an ordinary citizen uh, would, would, would find it uh, unreasonable. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, we, we, but again, of course, going to court is not actually democratic, but we might need these systems to transcend this impasse in society mm -hmm. where everything is so contentious and we're not working together harmoniously and empathically with, with people with, with, with might have drug problems or they just see benefits in what they do. Mm -hmm. So uh, an empowered advisory council with an understanding of the core liberty that's at stake that should be pervasive throughout the, the, the administration of this law would be, uh, you know, always uh, in their contemplation. And indeed, the Misuse of Drugs Act sets out to achieve that in a way. Although people don't believe it and they want to get rid of it, it actually sets out to balance that equation that we talked about earlier between liberty and social harms through those regulations, bearing in mind that use of drugs is not illegal. So it can do all of that, and that's what we should be setting out to do with, with an advisory council. And that would mean, for our cannabis-focused friends, that that would mean that there would be some regulations. We don't need to take it completely outside of the act. I had a big discussion with uh, a, a charming group of people from Ireland at the end of Product Earth that uh, are all campaigning to get cannabis removed from the Misuse of Drugs Act. And I said, we don't even need to do that. I mean, apart from the fact that it's the green fetish that I talked about, that it's not really... It's been drug um, exceptionalism. Well. the nail on the head. It's a kind of a, a side issue in some regards. Even if, it's, even if the only drug you ever want to use is cannabis, it's still, as you said, we're all the possibility. It, you know, other people are as much in my contemplation as myself in all of this, that um, we don't need to take cannabis outside the Misuse of Drugs Act. I mean, yes, it would be interesting if they did that, but at the same time, I've got caveats that, you know, I, call it a plant call it a drug I, I i don't i call it a herb i'm not quite into that semantics i don't think those things are so important so that all those language things that you might use the wrong term to describe somebody you might misgender somebody and people are very very clear about this if i was to stand up in in public and use the wrong word you know to describe a minority whatever people would walk out but those words of the law they're very important. They say because I, I you, know, you could say sticks and stones won't will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And in some ways, you know, calling somebody uh, some slur, you know, some racist slur or homophobic slur, you know, it's it's, it's not worthy. It's not anything that should be celebrated at all. But ultimately, the harm caused by that is is fairly subjective, and robust people might be able to deflect some of that. I'm not saying there isn't an overriding culture that taps into it because you are getting real oppression and racism and homophobia at the same time. So it's not very nice when people add to that by, 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 by using the wrong words and saying things which are offensive to you. But in terms of freedom of speech, you can't really balance that with a right not to be offended because 
A right of freedom of speech means a freedom from state intervention. That's what real rights are. Real civil rights are not about what the state can do for you. It's what the state won't do. So it gives you an area of operation. So freedom of speech means that you can say virtually what you like. I mean, I know there are caveats to that as well about official secrets and military secrets and things like that, which are probably best not just churned out in popular media in this society, but not in a future society. But the idea that you have a right not to be offended, that's an open-ended, vacuous concept, which requires the police and, and Crown, Crown Prosecution Service come in and stop you speaking. So they're not, it's not really a balance of two equal concepts, the right to speak and the right not to be offended. They're qualitatively very, very, very different. Mm. So I'm not quite sure how I got onto that uh, now, but really we can afford reasonable rights to people. Nobody needs to um, complain unless they are actually directly affected uh, by, by other people's actions. And that's what the law enables us to do. It enables us to, to afford people those rights. It does. The Misuse of Drugs Act and our common law and our human rights already recognise the principles that I'm talking about. It's not even controversial in many regards to administer the, the Misuse of Drugs Act properly. And it, 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 yeah, it naturally will be a harm reduction model, even though... I think harm reduction is another sort of sacred cow within the movement that we're, we're, what we're trying to do is reduce harms. And, you know, I'm entirely on board with that. But really, the, the more important thing is the fundamental core human right mm -hmm. to have bodily autonomy and freedom of thought. It is about thought because drugs change the modality of thinking. Mm -hmm. And that is what is so threatening and scary to people because sometimes it involves like huge transcendental experiences that, that people imagine are only done by tribal people and primitive people and they're not for us because they're too uncomfortable. And people are scared of that. They are scared of that. And I think some intrepidation about those kind of things is, is right and, and, and understandable. But when it translates into telling other people what to do, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what's appropriate these things are rooted in 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 in, in I don't know, the interpretation of christianity and the interpretation of various philosophers that have got us to where we are that somehow these are dirty ideas and that and mm -hmm. you know drug use is stigmatized because you are transcending god's desire for you to be a certain way and you're you're you're, you're doing something diabolical it's, and of course, it is actually the opposite. It is actually a spiritual quest. The idea of the psychonaut, the spiritualist, the shaman is to get as close and to be the, your best self, to be the purest self. And it's monastic. I mean, those. it's not the same as, as taking, uh, you know, drugs for, uh, as, as purely for pleasure uh, in, in this regard. You know, there's nothing positive about really fiending on cocaine. It's quite, quite selfish, although I support people's right to do it. But those roots of, of actually trying to, to break free from the, the constraints of uh, religious dogma, uh, Western religious dogma, into something uh, that, that characterizes different indigenous cultures and has done for thousands of years, their, their pathways to spirituality, mm -hmm. is very, very significant. And I, 
you know, they're literally censoring what it means to, to feel God, to feel um, connection. They're literally saying, no, we don't want you to have that direct route to feel connectivity. We want you to read these prayers, to sing these songs, to stand up and sit down when we say, which is my experience of going into religious places, is that I don't feel kind of spiritual or religious at all. I've just been told what to do, what page we're on. Uh, you know, I've, I've stood there, uh, in my background was Jewish, I've never been really observant about that, or just in phases, but, you know, I've gone to a synagogue and I've just been kind of meditating, looking at a beautiful object or something, just thinking about the context of, of my life and what this is going on. And people have come and poked me and said, look, you know, we're, we're on this page here, this is what yeah, you yeah. speak. And they, they want to tell you what to do, whereas really, what these molecules represent is is a, is, is a sort of shortcut in, in a way that perhaps people that study yoga might argue with that really you should be doing pranayamic breathing or like like Stanislav Grof with his with his holotropic breath work. You you or you in and very careful um, dietary rules and the rest of it, and you will obtain some spiritual level they call samadhi and mindlessness. But we don't always have the time or the, or the possibility of doing that. These things are very, very, very tough challenges. And in many ways, I think a lot of the drugs that are available, the so-called class A drugs, psychedelic drugs, they, they, they offer a, a pathway to a, a different way of being. And I think that is hardwired into us. I think we naturally enjoy changing our consciousness in much the same way as those kids spinning around do to get dizzy. Or people do to get running that it is intrinsically satisfying and revelatory mm -hmm. and they seem to want to stop that uh, and make it into a, 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 a process that is you know you can go on a, on a on a meditation retreat but you can't do it mm -hmm. you know with, with a substance and it, it's, a, it's, it, it's an attempt at homogenization standardization the reason alcohol is allowed to be so ubiquitous is everyone basically has the same experience you get a slowing you drink too much you're going to get sick you know yeah certain percentage have a propensity towards violence some people are going to get you know sexually active and and and, and horny and go off and do whatever some people are just going to go i'm going to put a cone on my head and they've qualified the outcomes they've built the pen they understand how to let the sheep get fucked up on that substance and go out you can't do that with these other compounds. It's it's. I've taken LSD like one year. Me and my mate did it every Sunday for a year, as as part of like an integral sort of therapy program we built to kind of help each other out. And every experience was different, entirely different. You, you just you can't. And we tried to to standardize certain settings to get certain sort of protocols. It was like a an unofficial, I guess, social experiment that we were operating under. But the compounds itself doesn't let you do that. The the, the variables within it, have you eaten? Have you, what are you stimulated by within the environment? You know, is there poly drug use involved? Is there, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? It's The gene is at the bottle though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then we're, we're arriving at a point now where they're, they're fucked either way. They, they really are. So I, I think it's vitally important as a community and as a movement, we really hammer down to this language. I think you've touched on a wonderful thing that, we need a citizen's drug advisory board made up of civilians, as in people that are not involved or connected with government. Well, both. Oh, oh, yeah, a combination so that we can have that conversation. Because I know a lot of academics that have done, you know, that are not going to be as open as Dennis was last week when he was saying how, many, how much drugs he's, he's had. I know a lot of academics that study these things that enjoy a lot of different, uh, you know, a bouquet of drug use. 
but they couldn't ever personally say that because their career would be taken despite what they study. So if we could create this space where there are, you know, lived experience, which is a vitally important data set that's missing, plus this academic and a little crossover of their lived experience as well, because that much more informs their work. Again, tattoos, tattoos don't get. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, it's not that, that drugs are the answer, but maybe um, it's interesting. I was reading, I think, uh, in, in an extract of Michael Pollan's book where he described how uh, societies have relied upon sort of this idea of contrarianship, being a contrarian in society, that um, those people that, that took psychedelics were, were, were different in the sense that some leader might say, right, well, we need to walk to new pastures, we're all going to walk west. And some people will be contrarians and say, well, no, we're going to go east. And about 10% of them would. And throughout evolution, invariably, some of the people that decided to go west with the leader, they would not find green pastures and they would die out. And if it wasn't for the contrarians, none of the people would survive. And so this idea of being, not going with the the flow of the education system, the the official education system and the official narrative, whilst they're demonized by the courts and, and, and viewed entirely cynically, those are the really important people. Yeah, there will be some, some crazy loons in that, in that bunch that, that don't actually amount to very much and lead people towards disaster. But those people that, that step outside of that framework and say, let's do things differently, are very important. And perhaps it's psychedelics that have allowed that kind of conscious reflection over the context. So it allows that stepping back, not being on the shop floor. So like 90% of the people effectively on the shop floor and other people have taken this, this different perspective and that they have in, in a sense solved the problem. So what I was saying about uh, Casey uh, as an LSD chemist um, coming up with a, an analysis and he was working with me for, for a while and you know, I say he, he, he kind of led me to, to look at it more deeply. Um, in a way, the, the drugs have actually facilitated a level of understanding and thinking that solves the problem of drug prohibition. And that is really what I'm, I, I, I'm why I'm here today is to try and solve drug prohibition to start a conversation about that, that that people can reference it or you know just it's just part of the chain hopefully well not hopefully but uh, certainly uh, making some progress i've been doing this for about 15 years it's very difficult and begin to identify you know what the barriers to understanding are and coming working on better examples i still haven't cracked it because for most of that time, I've, I've been a lone voice. It was great to hear you on Earth to explain that cannabis wasn't illegal. I mean, that is a, a, almost a unique event in my experience. I've usually been somebody at conferences. I was, Casey sent me to the World Psychedelic Forum in 2005 in Basel in Switzerland. And, you know, when I was trying to introduce these ideas, I was, I'm not exactly being hissed at, but mm-hmm. I rolled that and I still get that. Uh, even though there is there's a lot of truth in, in these ideas, but there's the right time for everything. It's always now, and it will it will improve. It will definitely improve because I recognise that 
some of these ideas about the importance of language that it creates it's not re reflective and responsive to a reality that is out there it actually is creating a reality and it does it in law to such an extent. Law is language on steroids. It is so much about the words. Yeah. And to think that, and I'm sorry, but, you know, like I, I had a, a lot of uh, discussions with Danny and Steve from Transform, and they were the most reluctant, and Transformers still are. I still see them at events. I see that, their, their, you know, they their come up and, and, and do stuff. And, they, you know, their blueprint for regulation was... It was pretty useful work and they have been very high profile in trying to explain the, the pragmatic benefits of reform, but they always, every group falls short of actually grasping the nettle mm -hmm. because there's two reasons for reform. One is the pragmatic thing, which is about harm reduction, is about economic cost and, and not incarcerating people necessarily. But the other limb of it is we need liberty. Uh, really, liberty is what defines us, defines us what it means to be human. And But they won't touch that. They won't talk about the positives, really. They only just get into it if there's some little medical benefit for somebody to go, oh, look at that. But they don't say, no, it's positive that with suitable education in, in, in the suitable place, that, that you should have the freedom to choose what you want to do with your mind and body they won't do that. They won't cross the nettle. And my experience with Transform was that, they, they, I mean, I'm still blocked by Transform. I'm blocked by a lot of people on Twitter and other, they don't let me read their stuff because they, they know that if I read it, I'm an expert proofreader. Now, I've spent so many years on it, I just pick up immediately on all the points of law and the linguistic fallacies within their arguments. And I read it every day. I just, so much, so many cannabis groups talking about it's an illegal drug, we need to legalize it and all this stuff. And they can't bear it because people don't really like to be told how to speak. It's very personal to us. Yeah. But yet they are so happy to walk out if somebody uses the wrong word to describe a minority group, mm -hmm. but they will nevertheless talk about illegal drugs. And I have to tell you that it is as offensive an expression as you could possibly get, believe it or not. It is truly offensive because what it does it degrades your citizenship to that of an object like slavery and it carries the, the force of law when, although it doesn't exist in law, as I've said before, legal drugs do not exist in law, they administer the law as if they do. Mm -hmm. That's the thinking behind the way that they operate all those regulations that I told you about in the Mrs. Drugs Act, is that it is illegal. And whenever somebody writes a petition, they'll come back and say, cannabis is an illegal drug because. Mm -hmm. They always say that. It's always, it's illegal because. Every Home Secretary will say it. Mm -hmm. uh, Prissy Patel was particularly unconscionable about that. Um, I think we've got a new Home Secretary now, I can't remember name, uh, their name. But um, it's... Uh, I'm sorry, but Transform, they stuck to that, that narrative. They think that the public understand it and therefore don't want someone like me muddying the waters saying, well, actually, it's more complicated than that. Let's stick with our little easy terms, a bit like it's easy just to put an amanita instead of a psilocybin. You know, don't worry about it. Let's just say the drugs are illegal because people know what that means. But what they know that that means is something which is completely incorrect because it closes the door 
on all of those regulations that they're entitled to. Mm -hmm. Because whilst it is like illegal to be to be caught with cannabis in your possession without the license of those exemption. Yes, yeah, okay, it, unlawful in that sense, I suppose. Yeah, well, I, I'm not even going to split the difference on that one at the mm. moment, although I appreciate you you raising it. But there is a space to operate where it, it shouldn't be through mm. those regulations because you're not causing social harms. And therefore, yeah. the fact that you're criminalized, but somebody drinking alcohol isn't is an inequality of treatment. That's a common law expression, that you should treat like cases alike and different cases differently. So alcohol is a fair analogy um, for a controlled drug um, because it can be misused. It does cause social problems. Mm -hmm. And yet we're not grasping the network. We're not grasping it because yeah. we've, we've got this binary thinking about legal or illegal whereas in fact it's much more nuanced than that controlled drugs means drugs that we are controlled with respect to and the purpose of that control is to ameliorate the social harms that might arise through the misuse of that drug mm -hmm. and that all that is irrelevant in the way that it's, it's being administered it doesn't matter what you do it doesn't even matter what the consequences are in fact they could, and the other thing is that people always advocate the benefits and whilst it's good to talk about the benefits you know that Alfie kid, you know, he's getting benefits from his cannabis, there's no doubt about it. But mm -hmm. actually, the Misuse of Drugs Act is not about benefits. Mm -hmm. We don't have to wave the flag for the benefits. Mm -hmm. We only have to point to the fact that there's no social harm. It's mm -hmm. not there to encourage positive drug use, although it can. The, the law is there to step in when misuse causes social problems. And if there are no social problems caused by misuse, there's no justification for stopping those activities. You don't need to come along and say, actually, there's a benefit to it. I mean, I'm not saying it's harmful to point to the benefits, but you're arguing about something you don't need to because it's already a, a given that you should have access to something if it's neutral. If yeah. it doesn't cause harm to society, it's neutral. You don't need to make a case about what you can achieve. Because maybe you won't achieve it, and then they'll say, well, you know, you, you've predicated your argument on the fact that you're gonna cure all these people, and you haven't. They've all yeah. relapsed. But so what? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you don't have to do that. The law is about mm -hmm. avoiding negative, criminal law is about avoiding antisocial behavior. Mm -hmm. It's not about encouraging positive behavior. You don't even have to be a good Samaritan in law. You know, effective. Yeah. Unless you're um, some qualified lifesaver, you don't have to save somebody from drowning in the river. You, know, yeah. you don't have to. You're not guilty of murder or, or even manslaughter by walking on. I mean, yeah, yeah, you should try to do something if you can. You should definitely try to do something. But the law is not about telling you how to behave positively in that regard. Those are for civil duties. The criminal law is about stopping you harming other people. And if you don't have a duty of care, you don't have to go out and create positive benefits for society. Mm -hmm. You just have to not harm society. So I, I, I'm, I'm always focusing back on that individual right to choice, personal autonomy, that is integral to defining what it culturally means, and in this case, biologically means to be human, because those drugs are the most intimate things that we can do. It's more intimate than, than making love, isn't it, really? Because Mm. it's actually completely within you.
it's completely yeah. taken part of you. And that is a natural and normal phenomenon that has been going on for thousands of years. And the stigma that is around it is being created through social constructs and religious dogma and to preserve the rights of certain classes of people. Uh, and now we're seeing that move from the sort of spiritual priestly class of, of, of uh, wanting to maintain this sort of hierarchy about who has access to things. Uh, it's been, now it's, it's moving into the corporate sphere where it's corporations that uh, are now determining uh, what it means to be human as it were. And uh, none of it is, gives people or allows us to develop the power as as, as citizens, free free subjects as, as we as we are entitled mm -hmm. to. Yeah, no, yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head there, and it's it's one of the things I've been circling around in my head for a while of, of where to put my efforts and my energies and where to kind of um, sort of direct the efforts of others that are feeling very disenfranchised and kind of lost within all of this. And I think, yeah, back to the liberty argument, there's some really good movements around uh, like a consciousness revolution. Um, so obviously people trying to win back our attention from Silicon Valley and from some of like the apps and the other ways that our systems around us, the governors and the rule our daily lives of, you know, kind of well, to use Johan Harry's phrase, stolen our focus. Um, so I think there is some great intersectionality and connection with other movements. And once we can get people to understand that the drug, it's irrelevant, the expression of the drug use is irrelevant. The right to use it is the argument. I mean, I think of Voltaire, you know, of, of uh, the quote of speaking of, um, you know, I may disagree with you, but I'll fight to the death for your right to 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 defend the right for you to say it. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the position that we, we need to be in as a society that yeah i probably am not likely you know especially with a with a with a needle phobia to ever intravenously use heroin or, or cocaine or any of those kind of injectable uh substances but i'm definitely gonna fight to my dying day for the people that, that do because there is no difference yeah you the, are the, the possibility of that that's what you represent exactly, exactly that and they're denying me a choice they're probably making my world smaller it's in if you are not they don't deny you your sexual expression or they're not supposed to it's enshrined by law i know obviously we've spoken of the fragility and issues within that but then the same is is, is true of religious identity you know what i mean it's we now have obviously the church of the flying spaghetti monster they did some brilliant work in australia where they got their religious headwear which was a an upside down cauldron on their, their official identification pictures um, and got it obviously accepted in, in various things. And what they were doing was basically just trying to show that belief is belief is belief. You can't just then say we're going to protect these certain religions because they have this established dogma. If you believe in something, I think this is the next thing. The next belief structure is that we believe we, we are free, not that we have to ask for it. It's that we already were free. They've built this thing on top of us and almost through consciousness and understanding these systems and, and just deconstructing them once we understand the language and we talk about it all ourselves it, we can see how weak it is how bastardized it's become through the misinterpretation of in, of consecutive generations of governments people in positions of, of authority and power and, and of yeah, supposed independent advisors that have constructed this reality um i'm, I'm very mindful of the uh of the time here, of the length of this. Um... I just say though that, that, that you're right to say that about the language because before I was just I didn't quite finish that I, I remembered now that I said sticks and stones would break my bones and 
I was talking about offensive language, and then yeah. I come back to that illegal drugs thing, is that law, although it's words, it is like sticks and stones, because yes, they will use words to beat you up, as it were, to lock you up, to take your liberty, to search your belongings and all those things. So words, you know, really do carry power. And I think the key to unraveling this, it does, as soon as, it takes some time to, to, to realise it, and don't expect people necessarily to, to, to get this straight away. But as soon as you dispel that illegal drug, drugs myth, you open up everything. In fact, it is the key, the, the portal through we have to go because then we connect all the dots after that. Everything falls into place as soon as you realise that the objects, are, the state doesn't control objects and they can't have this like, edifice of legality and illegality about objects, is that your whole, all of your rights come in, in, into, into play. They're actually up now in the equation. They're on the table. And ultimately, separating these ideas out, which is, it brings it all together. So it, it, it's almost like that experience of, of connectivity that ultimately is the chemical message from the drug experience itself is born out from the realization. It, 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 it brings everything together. It brings together the materialists and the metaphysicists. Ultimately, it does. I don't expect people to quite get that just now, but ultimately, all of these conundrums that and divisions within the drug policy um, reform movements that you have all of the, the sort of eclectic spiritual uh, people that turn up uh, ex-hippies and whatever at these events and you've got all these doctors and psychiatrists and controllers and they're coming from two different angles where it's going to be compass pathways controlling this or it's going to be people. Ultimately, it all comes together once you understand the language paradigm and I know that is, is a difficult thing to see straight away. It took me months, literally, or years. Uh, I, I realised the, the profundity of what Casey came up with and the, what I have been talking about 15 years. It is more profound than, than, than it appears on the surface. It's definitely not just a legal exercise, a semantic exercise. It is something which is philosophical and actually gets to the core of, of this self and other that ultimately we are connected and that we are part of this huge huge uh, sort of matrix of molecules and we are it's all part of our inheritance and our uh, and our futures uh, as a freedom of choice of the individual is that we support the individual in order to connect the individual so that it, 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 the society is the important entity at the end of the day not just the individual but we have to fight for the individual now to make him part of the society, to make him connected to all of these things, or her. So it's um, they or it. I, I, I don't worry about uh, minor language transgressions of what's PC and what isn't. I'm saying that this particular language protocol is something which carries real weight because it has it it carries the force of law ultimately because the law is being used as if these concepts, these constructs, are real. And they're not real, they're fake. Mm. They're based upon misuse of language. And mm. as soon as we start to use the language properly, we'll see how that puts us back at the center of our lives and makes us the possibility of being that whether you choose it or not, we have those possibilities. Without those possibilities, we are lab rats in a petri or like we're in a petri dish and somebody's introducing molecules and right. saying, well, you can have that and see what effect it has on yeah. those bacteria. We're almost that. But um, 
sorry we're out of time, but it's probably we've probably done a good job. Thinking, yeah, we were busy approaching I think three hours on uh, on that, which is was yeah, it? Wow. yeah, pr- pretty good. I think we uh, there's a hell of a lot in there for people to digest. Uh, I'm going to obviously share some links below uh, for people to learn more about Casey and his story and you know, the work that you sort of have been undertaking. Um, yeah, just one of my, I suppose, final question: Where can people find more of your work or more of more information about what it is here? Because I think this is hopefully going to you know, ignite a few fires and a few people to go, holy shit, and then get that itch and really they need somewhere to go scratch it. So have you got anywhere to direct them? <laughs> well, I don't mind if people contact me. Uh, if they, in fact, uh, it's actually the hardest question you've asked because this <laughs> week uh, the guy who was administering the website that we had has, has disappeared and uh, decided he's not doing it and it's gone offline. So I'm sorry to, to, to sort of end on a disappointing note there, but... Um, I, I'm happy to, if, if you want to put a, a contact address on on your blog, I won't say it now, but I'll, I'll, you know, an email, I'm happy to point people at stuff that's still up and online. Um, so that, unfortunately, Drug Quality Alliance website is offline, but I'm not quite sure uh, quite what to do with it. Um, because I, was, I, I, I actually struggle with IT. Um, uh, if anybody wants to volunteer to help with IT, uh, we could possibly get it back online. Um, if it, uh, there will be uh, stuff that I've done um, previously, um, I never think I never look back at what we did previously and think that was great because uh, it's always like evolving. And I'm, I'm more happy with this conversation than any other podcast. And then I knew you'd be great uh, because out of all the people at the cannabis focus thing, I could see that you, you, you'd stood back and you'd, you looked at it from above. And uh, you know you you were open to this, and that's why we had a, a really good conversation. But uh, you know people could Google my name and see some talks I've done at breaking convention, things like that. But you know I can't say I'm I'm, I'm terribly proud of it. But just focus on the ideas that I've got. Um, I, I'll leave an email address for you on the on the website. Anybody can contact me. Um, you know, and uh, I'm happy to talk about it, explain things to people. I've always done that. Um, not too busy for that i'm not i'm not famous like i can't deal with it so mm-hmm. yeah it's my pleasure to help people get this right and if people you know i'm certain that all the legal things that i've said are correct mm-hmm. um some things are a matter of opinion obviously i've gone into a little bit of conjecture about the importance of molecules and that's based upon my own thought but a lot of what i've said is is pretty rigorous and uh people want to check it out then check it out and you don't quite get it yet or because that's what will happen people will say hang on a second you know i've been talking about this for a long time can't you know you don't just hear something and then fundamentally transform yourself you need a three-day workshop to do that you need that uh, integration period whether it's yeah, learning something <laughs> on psychedelics or hearing something yeah. on a podcast yeah yeah i don't want to sound arrogant about it but i know it's right and mm. I, I know the legal side is right. So mm. it's, it's, it's it, what people make of it is entirely up to them. But uh, this, is the, this is the way forward is, is, is to refute this idea. And when any politicians and other things start talking about illegal drugs, is don't let them. Because what they're doing is they're shutting you off. They're literally calling you a slave. That you, you, you're no, you have no possibilities of being in this regard. That they're going to control your consciousness completely, irrespective of outcomes. 
and uh, your agency doesn't matter because what they've given it to drugs they actually gave the legal agency that, that, that you enjoy that is a common law principle that everything should be allow you reasonable freedom to operate until the, you reach that threshold they've, they've completely taken that away they've completely taken it away and they're doing that through that language through that simple idea because there is no equivalence between a legal drug and controlling people with respect to dangerous drugs. They're very, very different ideas. Yeah. And if we actually use the law properly, it is our friend. It mm. is, you know, I'm not a complete anarchist. I'm not saying, you know, let's do away with law, even though there's lots of problems. That's for a future world. At the moment, the real law is rational, but the way that they're administering it is based upon entirely false constructs. It's false consciousness that's pervading the reform movement. And I say to everybody that's involved with cannabis campaigning and everything, it's almost like a religious pursuit. It's, I'm not against what you're doing, and I'm not even suggesting that you need to try every other drug on the planet in order to get a different perspective. I'm just saying that you are focusing on the object, not the subject. You're focusing on a thing rather than, than what it represents. And it represents something else. It represents what's what's being represented is a freedom to be in any way that you choose. Yeah. And we have to we have to. It's not about legalizing all drugs. It's about regulating people sensibly with respect to all drugs. Mm -hmm. And it has to happen. That's the principle that has to go forward. It's not, yeah. no matter what you achieve with cannabis, and of course, yeah, people have achieved things with cannabis, you know, the legalization movement in America and other places, you know, they've got more rights to do one thing, but it's not really opening many that many doorways. It's, it's creating as, as many regulations, as, as even more regulations than before. It's inviting an awful lot of business and corporations in, into mm. something which is essentially a spiritual practice. You know, we need to, to pull back and recognize what is the message of, 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 of that we, we can gain from the, these drugs. I mean, you know, the mycelium of fungi is something which is is, is all embracing. It, it, it crosses the continents. It's there as our inheritance. It's there as a communicator for thousands of, of years. It's not the property of a corporation that uses Amanita emojis to promote it. It just isn't. Yeah. Anyway, we'll be up four hours. I was, was going to say, yeah, I was, I'm trying desperately not to respond to you because otherwise, we're gonna, yeah, we're going to go off. <laughs> no, it's meant um, to be a summing up. So, yeah, so yeah, I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. I, I, I know I've been a bit uh, gone off on a, a long rant every now and again, but it's you know, yeah, really lovely. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, honestly. I've, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. It's helped solidify <clears throat> some more these conceptual ideas within in my consciousness and hopefully like i said it'll help a lot more of my audience as well try and even just become itchy as it were to use a terrible analogy that there's something wrong here you could feel that discomfort lean into it folks please because it's that's where we're going to find truth that's where we're going to be able to i was gonna say congeal that's a terrible image in my brain there to you know incorporate in, in a certain way together in a collective movement and the image that flashed before my head earlier um when you were, we were talking was a crack pipe on a on a on a yellowed background thing like the americans uh liber, libertarian movement you know with the snake don't tread on me 
and it was just in my head is that we get we need to embrace that is it's the, the idea of the hypodermic needle of the thing of these again empty totems that they have then put in this meaning that we then pick up and go oh although your meaning the yeah as you said robbed us of agency of of autonomy of sovereignty of, of so many different things but the fight back starts today folks when when you realize that they're not illegal they're criminalizing you not just you whether you choose to or not you are a criminal under their eyes all of us are actually the way the, the drugs laws work effectively is that that's quite a fair way of looking at it actually that the assumption is that you will always and only capable of doing bad things with that drug. Therefore, we can't trust you with drugs. Very good. It is an insanity. But yeah, uh, definitely going to have you back on again in the not too distant future, brother, because there's there's so much more I want to delve into here. But like I said, I think my, my li- listeners' ears need a little bit of a rest. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. I will. Uh, I'll let you log off now, and then I'll do my my housekeeping. All the best, and do take my details for your audience if they want to contact me. I really don't mind. Beautiful. I'll uh, I'll make sure to contact you uh, later on tonight, tomorrow, as I'm doing the bio, and we'll make sure we've got all the right words. Lovely. But it's been, it's been a pleasure, honestly, brother. Thank you Great. very much. <laughs> Thank, you. Right. Thank you very That's... much. Okay. Well, there you go, folks. That was Daryl Bickler. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation, and I hope you guys did too. Um, a lot to cover. I know it's been about three hours we've just had that conversation. Uh, I did mention at the start, obviously, it may take a couple. I didn't expect it to take three, but actually we could have gone for on for many more. I do hope that you found uh, the information that provided within this useful. Uh, we do have many of the links below as well if you want to keep up and understand what's happening with Casey's story. Uh, last I looked, actually, I believe that he was putting in a bid to run uh, for the US president in 2024 bit different um yeah I'll, I'll try and find the link and pop that in the description below so do check that one out um but yeah i hope we, we've kind of covered the nuance of, of this we've kind of touched on well i say touched on we've very deep dove into sort of the nuance of legal of the legalese here and you know the difference between legal and lawful and to try and understand that it is us that are, us, us that it, we are the ones that are criminalized here that it is our actions it is the what we do what with the substances that is is criminalized um and yeah it all comes down to ultimately liberty freedom and i am now more than ever sure of the idea and the concept that legalization is not the freedom and liberty that we are seeking. It is, uh, as Daryl spoke of, it is a Trojan horse. It is a linguistical um, cognitive trick to get us to believe in a paradigm. To, you know, they've worn us down over decades with this war to now believe in their paradigm, as I, I spoke of earlier, that they should be in charge of this after they've spent decades demonizing us for doing it, I think is personally uh, repugnant, repulsive, and, and yeah, I cannot support this at this point. I am really struggling here. Um, quite literally in this moment as my brain is mulling through this because even the constructs that, that I have spoke of of decentralization, uh, especially now having spoke with Daryl, I now need to go away and further read, uh, especially points 22, uh, articles 22, 7 and 31 of the Misuse of Drugs Act. I, I need to deep dive further into this to understand uh, the potential benefits of this. I potentially have been operating through a, um, a muddied lens here to some degree. And as always, I'm happy to take you guys on this journey with me. So watch this space. I don't know what's coming next. <laughs> Uh, yeah, if you've enjoyed this episode, folks, please do check us out on patreon.com. We're less than a cup of coffee a week. You can help me keep the lights on. On this little project of mine 
We'll be back next week with uh, Mendo Dope Boys. That's going to be five man. Do check it out. Yeah, like, share, subscribe, all that good shit. See you next week. Peace and love, folks.